Hello, and welcome to the final episode of the Silmarillion Seminar. This episode was originally recorded in August 2011, but the recording was lost. So the Silmarillionaires, along with the Tolkien professor, came together again in January 2014 to re-record the lost episode. I hope you enjoy listening to it as much as we did recording it. Hello and welcome to the final episode, a very special episode of the Silmarillion Seminar. Tonight we have, uh, by our, a fortuitous twist of fate, the reunion episode of the Silmarillion Seminar. So let me explain what went on here, because um, it won't be obvious if you are if you have just finished listening through the Silmarillion Seminar here for the first time. Um, the final episode of the Silmarillion Seminar was recorded back in the middle of the year in 2011. And uh, unfortunately, we seem to have lost the recording of the final episode. Uh, so it's now been almost two and a half years, believe it or not, since the Silmarillion Seminar actually came to an end. Um, and we are taking this opportunity, under the circumstances of having lost the final episode, uh, to actually record, uh, to re-record this episode and do a reunion. Where is everybody two years later? So um, I wanted to just actually start off this episode uh, in that way, just kind of going through and and uh, uh, and sort of reintroducing everybody who's here. No, not everyone who contributed uh, to the seminar a couple years back was able to make it tonight. Uh, but a lot of people are here. Um, so I just wanted to kind of go through and say hi to people. Have you, uh, sort of reintroduce yourselves and, uh, you know, kind of, uh, if you want to offer any, any reflections, sort of retrospective on the Silmarillion seminar from, uh, from, from two years later, you'd be welcome to do that. So I'm going to, let's just go from, uh, uh, from the, uh, bottom to the top of the list. Uh, uh, Nick, you want to introduce yourself? Uh, sure. Uh, my name's Nick Brisbane. Um, I'm happy to be back, calling from Boston. Um, I really enjoyed the uh, the podcast. Um, it, I'm just wrapping up a PhD program in an unrelated field, not literature related, and it's it's really helped get me through. So I'm happy to be back. I will take any um, opportunity to put those books away and open a Tolkien book. So here I am. Excellent. Excellent. So good to see everybody again. This is it's really exciting to get together uh, with this with this group of people again. Uh, Mike, sure. Uh, Mike Thurway from Washington D.C. I'm thrilled to be back here again. Um, I was just ecstatic to be part of the seminar, um, and I'm uh, still reading lots of Tolkien, lots of fantasy literature, and I'm just happy and excited to be able to discuss it uh, whenever I can. And I've been to both of the uh, MythMoot conferences uh, these last two years, and uh, to anyone who's listening, come on out, because they're a blast. Yeah, yeah that's been a lot of fun. Of course, uh, the Mythgard Institute, uh, which has been going since the fall of 2011, right after we ended, and that isn't a coincidence. It was, of course, uh, my experience with you guys here in the Silmarillion Seminar uh, that really inspired me to start Mythgard, that was the thing that really made me realize the the, the, the kind of potential for the uh, the interaction and the the sort of the the teaching environment that could really happen through this kind of online interaction, um, and so therefore I went you know went out and founded a university and a lot's happened over the last two years. Uh, but yeah, yeah, it's been great to be able to see uh, Mike and a couple others at uh, at the uh, the our our Mythmoot conferences here over the last two years. Uh, Mike, of course, is the father of Style Time, um, which has become a fixture uh, not only in the Silmarillion seminar. Are, but uh, it's something, a, 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 
very frequently referred to when I'm doing uh, my Mythgard classes, when I'm doing um, our new Open Mythgard Academy classes. Um, like there are always people clamoring for style time when we uh, when we come to certain passages. So uh, it has definitely uh, has definitely become a fixture of our discussions. Uh, and Matt is here. Yes, <clears throat> yes. Uh, Matt Shaw from North Carolina. I'm a librarian and. Uh... Uh, being a part of the seminars is about the most fun I've ever had. It's been been a blast, and the people are terrific, and I'm just glad that I got to meet everybody. Yeah, excellent. Thanks, Matt. And Marielle is here. Hi, Marielle. Hello. Um, I think that that's probably the first time most people heard my voice. I was a silent partner for most of the last part of the seminar. seminar. I was an undergraduate at the time, and now I am in D.C. getting my graduate degree in medieval history. So excellent. Very good, very good. Glad that you could join us here, Mario. Yes, you're right. Uh, I don't think you ever did appear in audio form uh, in uh, the uh, the seminar before, um, but you're very much a part of our discussions, uh, sort of uh, off stage there, uh, as, as you say, towards the tail end of it. Uh, and Laura, our fearless producer. That's right. I am only a little bit afraid about this episode, but uh, yeah, my name is Laura Burkholz, and I'm from Madison, Wisconsin. I have been um, involved with uh, the Mythgard Institute uh, since it was started, and you can hear me occasionally now on the Riddles in the Dark Digest along with Dave Cale. That's right. And Trish Lambert. Can't forget her. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Very good. Thanks, Laura. Laura has been uh, just, uh, you know, ever since... Ever since she quietly took over as producer uh, during the middle of the Silmarillion seminar, uh, she has been a, a wonderful force of getting things done uh, in the uh, Mythgard and Tolkien professor world. So I am certainly, as always, grateful for, for Laura and all the work that she's done. And uh, and Jordan, the Fingofinophile, is here. That is correct. Jordan Brown, High King of the Noldor, Fingolfinophile. Um, I am also some, I guess everyone went to graduate school after we finished. Uh, <laughs> so I'm also getting a, uh, grad, a master's in um, mass communication. And oh, Austin, Texas, so I'm not snowed in, which is delightful. <laughs> and that's probably it, right? I don't know. Uh, very good. That's true. I guess you should, you know, the the Summerlian seminar should uh, uh, should you know come with a warning that uh, uh, it, it may perhaps lead to graduate studies, apparently. And Dave is here. Oh, 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 oh yes, George. Wait, 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 wait. And the proud namer of Signum oh, University. Yes, that is true. That is true. When we when the Silmarillion heirs went at well, not all of them, unfortunately, but when many of the Silmarillion heirs got together at MythCon in 2011. Um, I was still struggling with what to name uh, the university. I'd come up with come up with Mythgard, but I needed a name for the university of which Mythgard was going to be a part. And it Jordan, it was Jordan who came up with. I had some concepts, but it was Jordan who came up with uh, who came up with the name Signum University. Um, sitting in some some high class restaurant, eating green chilies in Albuquerque, as I recall. Yes, yes. Jordan will always have that particular <laughs> notoriety. Dave is here. Dave, do you have a do you have a drink here tonight? Yeah, uh, green. You know, Corey, green chilies are the source of all inspiration. Aren't they? Well, they certainly are in Albuquerque. No question about yeah. that. I guess that's really all we have to eat. So <laughs> yes. Um, no, I, I, alas, I have nothing to drink. Although probably in the long run, that's probably a good thing. Um, but. 
but don't you worry. I'll I'll uh, I'll be uh, I'll be pouring myself a glass during the unfinished tales seminar. Oh, excellent. Okay. Uh, um. So uh. So some of the some of you may listen to Riddles in the Dark. Um. Uh, and so you may recognize my voice. And if you're not listening to it, what's wrong with you? Um. Uh. And uh. Anyway. Um. Assuming most of you are, I don't need to introduce myself. I'm in LA. Um. Many of you know I'm in grad school. Yada yada yada. Um. The, I just the thing I wanted to share the, the two things continue to astound me um, about all of your various endeavors, Corey. Um, one is that the, the sheer number of people I keep meeting either online or like at MythMood or whatever who keep who are like super excited about the Silmarillion seminar. Yeah. In fact, there's a lot. I feel like there's a lot of people. I have one of my feeds and tweet deck is a is a continual stream of what people are tweeting at you that I monitor and occasionally respond to. So I'm basically eavesdropping on your conversations. <laughs> right. And, and, inserting myself <laughs> the number of people the number of people who like continue to tweet at you and say hey just finished listening to Silmarillion seminar love that is like really astounding um in fact i so i keep meeting people who are like oh yeah i guess i really should read that i i just keep telling people like I, apparently you should listen to this seminar because uh all these people on the internet think it's the best thing ever so you know it's one um, you're right dave i mean that's one of the things that i have been so delighted by and that's kind of my own you know retrospection here from two years later is not just what the Silmarillion seminar led to for me and, and, you know, the things that it kind of inspired and, and, and moved me to in, in, you know, the whole Mythgard thing. But, um, but the fact that the years since we recorded it have really shown that, that the thing has really stood up, um, because there have been many people, I think of all of the, you know, the sort of separate series or strands that I have done, uh, in my podcast, I think the Silmarillion seminar has, has really been best received. Certainly more, I, I receive more of those kinds of emails, more of those kinds of, um, <clears throat> you know, this, this thing changed my life. Like, I will never look at Tolkien the same way again since I listened to, and it's usually not, you know, my lectures or, or something like that. It's usually the Silmarillion seminar, um, that, uh, it really, uh, I think has achieved the goal that I had for it better than anything I've done has achieved its goal. Um, it's, uh, it's, that's, and that, that's been really exciting and very rewarding. Um, yeah. Uh, let's see what's, uh, I can always have two more, two more people here in our roll call, uh, before we begin our discussion. Chris. Yeah. Uh, my name's Chris Stevens in frozen Indianapolis, Indiana, sipping on some Bailey's to try to keep warm. Um, the main thing I'd like to say is, uh, participating in the seminar. I'd read Tolkien and the Silmarillion, I mean, all Tolkien's works many times over the years. And I learned more in that nine months, eight or nine months that, uh, we participated in that than I did all the other times I read it. Thoroughly enjoyed it from beginning to end. And it even, it didn't lead me to postgraduate work, but I did <laughs> audit some, I did audit some, a couple of Mythgard sessions that I thoroughly enjoyed. That's and right. Got to Myth yes, and we did get to see you at Mythmoot this year too. Yeah, fantastic. A very great time at Mythmood. Yeah, awesome. Awesome. Good. And Brandon's here. Brandon Young from Massachusetts, little south of Boston. Uh, when I look back on the Silmarillion seminar, uh, I just hear my voice and I just can't listen to it because it's just, <laughs> it was my first time reading the Silmarillion and I just, you know, go off on these things I think I know about. I had no idea. Uh, but it is interesting kind of to, to listen to it. Um, and, and, uh, and to see how, how much I've matured since then, um, getting involved in Mythgard and, and at Mythmoot, and which was a lot of fun, um, seeing Mythgard grow. 
some background noise. But um, okay, yeah, that's about it. Yeah, it was. It's, I'm just here to have fun. It's good to see you guys again. Yeah, we'll hear you guys. Let's see. Then, uh, oh, and and yes, our one uh, final participant who is here tonight, but uh, whom we're having a little bit of a difficult time um, uh, getting uh, his uh, audio working properly, uh, is John Evans, um, who. Uh, is he's is able to join us? We'll be getting some some contributions from him. But I said we couldn't connect him by audio, but he is also here with us. So very good. All right. Well, let's get back to our discussion. So uh, I'm sure you all remember two and a half years ago we were talking about of the rings of power in the third age. Um, so if we could just jump right back in where we left off there. Um, my, <laughs> I was going to say my recollection, but that's a lie. Uh, the notes that I have uh, <laughs> from Laura remind me uh, that what we were talking about, we had talked primarily about Sauron and the Second Age, um, and th- we were thinking about Sauron and his relationship with the elves. Um, we're thinking primarily about uh, about the Third Age here tonight. We want to pick up with that. Um, and I'm one of the things that I'm most interested to talk about is the um, the references to the Lord of the Rings at the end. The kind of um, because to me, I think it's one of the things that really emphasizes the tone and the register of the Silmarillion. You know, there's several times during the seminar when we've been talking about that. You know, we've been talking about um, the tone and the style and how it's approaching the story um, and you know, sort of looking at ways and, you know, when the, um, when the, the sort of the narrative voice of the Silmarillion uh, sort of pans back and starts giving this, this huge overview. And then other times when it kind of zooms in and, and gives us uh, much more careful detail. And uh, um, then uh, we have, so at the end of this, at the end, at the very end of the Rings of Power in the Third Age, we get that kind of treatment, that Silmarillion treatment of the Lord of the Rings, right? And the Hobbit, uh, you know, we get each of them in about one sentence. Uh, and I, I, I think it's, it's, it's really neat to look at that. Um, and it helps us, I think, um, when we have, for this one instance, when we have a story that we already know, an account we we have heard elsewhere and know quite well, and to see it get a kind of Silmarillion treatment uh, is very cool, very interesting. Um, oh, and I see, hey, we have a latecomer who has joined us. Jason Jewell has joined us. Let's see, Jason, can we hear you? Can you hear me? Yeah, can. Great. Hey, welcome. Thank you. Okay. Um, all right. Good. Excellent. So Jason Jewell's here, too. Um, very good. Okay. All right, boy, I am out of practice with my Silmarillion seminar interface, which is, has me looking at so many more different screens than I am normally looking at when I'm just doing my Mythgard classes. Um, let's start at, let's start with the third age among men. So, um, the first issue is about Isildur keeping the ring. Um, Laura was asking, uh, in our notes before the show, why does Isildur keep the ring? Um, Laura, did you want to talk about that? Well, if I could just remember my thought processes from a couple <laughs> years ago. Um, yeah, you know, I, I just wondered, um, you know, I know the ring has a, a power of its own, you know, that, that a, you know, covet the ring once they have it. But, you know, he knows it's from Sauron. He knows about Sauron. He's rejected Sauron in the past. Um, does you know, does he think maybe 
does it work on him the way Boromir, it works on Boromir? Does he think maybe he can use it? Is that why he's taking it? Um, you know, is it just the weakness of men that keeps him from throwing it away into the fire? I, I guess, you know, we don't really find his motivation because we don't really get the kind of insight we do into, say, Frodo's mind when he's got the ring. Right. Um, so right. we don't know exactly what it is. But, um, you know, it, it's just interesting to think about, you know, what were the reasons why he actually kept it for himself and wanted to bring it up north. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, you know, this I shall keep as wear guild for my father and my brother is not... Is not a very, uh, you know, convincing ring-induced monologue. You're right, it's hard to tell from that um, if he is being worked upon. The kind of, you know, the ways that um, that it seems, at least it seems to me, that we can that we can really see the pattern of how the ring works on people's minds um, in the, you know, sort of the, the, the thoughts that they have and the things that they say when they seem to be under some kind of temptation from the ring. You know, we don't we don't get any of those clear indications with this Ildur, so you're right, it is hard to conclude. Um, Dave, what do you think? Uh, I remember, th- I remember thinking something. I had some <laughs> thought related to this. Let's see. I see, I see there's a note with my name in bold next to it with Boromir and Frodo written. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, one, th- one thought, one thought I had was, um, uh, I think the portray the differing portrayals of Isildur, it's like when I, when I read, um, the Akalabeth and I read about Isildur there and him going in and like daring the great deed of stealing a, a, a piece of fruit from Nimloth and all that. It's like it's not even the same guy. Like there, I have this disconnect in my brain between the characters in the Akalabeth and the characters I read about in the Lord of the Rings. Um, and and I suppose maybe maybe if we thought about it long enough, we could probably try to come up. We could harmonize those those different portrayals. Um, maybe it's Isildur's. Um, Maybe the same quality that leads him to dare that that deed uh, to break in and steal the fruit of Nimloth, um, you know, sort of the root courage is also sort of the impulsiveness that leads him to keep the ring or, or makes him fall prey to it. But um, yeah, that's that's one of the things that I'm struck by. Um, and then also uh, just sort of inferring what I meant when I wrote this in the Google Doc years ago. <laughs> um, I, apparently, I thought there were some interesting comparisons of Isildur's fall to both Boromir and, and I guess, you know, and I guess we could say Frodo also had a fall. And John thought um, a comparison with Saruman might also be a fruitful mm-hmm. uh, comparison. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, Dave, thinking about Isildur's character, I certainly agree. And, you know, one of the things that I always uh, felt kind of lacking, not that I felt that it was a blemish, but one of those, you know, there's so many stories in that are alluded to in the Silmarillion or, you know, in the appendices of, of the Lord of the Rings, you know, characters you never really get to know, stories you never really get to hear. I always wanted to hear more stories of Elendil. There's so little that we actually get about him. Um, Isildur, though, is one that we do get well, we get more snippets about him than we get certainly about his father or his brother. And I think that we can kind of put those together. Um, I, I think that we can kind of put those together and begin to see uh, something like uh, a, uh, a pattern of character there, which does seem to me to fit with his claiming of the ring. Um, 
But, uh, so, I mean, if you think about, okay, what do we know about Isildur? Dave, you mentioned the fact that he, you know, crept in and stole the fruit, uh, from the tree in Numenor so that the white tree was preserved and brought to Mid-earth. That's the first thing that we hear about him, and he does that apparently when he's quite young. We also know that when he landed, uh, in Mid-earth, when they set up their kingdom, Isildur is the one who built his fortress on the mountains, like on the, the the boundary to Mordor. I mean, remember when we see Minas Morgul, you know, when we pass by uh, and around Minas Morgul uh, in, in, in the Two Towers, of course, by the time it's Minas Morgul, it is, a, you know, a defense and fortress of Mordor itself. But we have to remember that was built there by the Numenorians, and and uh, you know, and this was this was I it seems to me uh, most likely done in defiance of 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 Sauron um, and of his kingdom, uh, and you know that seems to me to begin to to sort of suggest a character for Isildur. He's not just I think rash. Um, but possibly a little bit, uh, a, a little bit arrogant. Let's see, uh, Nick, and then Marielle. Nick. Yeah, it, it automatically made me think of uh, the Ringwraiths, the Nazgul, mm-hmm. and how the nine rings were given to them. And it was said that the men were um, the most susceptible to that, the seductive power of of the rings and the power that came with them. Um, it, it, I, I assume that the one ring is far more powerful and far more seductive than those nine rings. It's, it's the one ring. So, and on top of that, Isildur is in a place of power and, and you know, maybe his initial uh, motivation is to help his people um, through the ring, but we, we know that's not going to happen. But I, I think it might be, it's a combination of things, but I think it's certainly the call of the ring itself. It does seem very likely. Um Again, we don't have any obvious, they won't have any clear and explicit evidence of that necessarily. But I, but I do think that that certainly seems likely. And you think about it, he wouldn't even necessarily have to be claiming it, uh, to use it. Again, you think of the circumstances. He's just beaten Sauron. I mean, this is the guy who has just cut the ring from Sauron's hand. And remember, in the books, unlike in the films, this was not like a de- last desperate underdog kind of thing. They just defeated Sauron. And, you know, so Isildur is the guy who just had his his boot on Sauron's neck uh, while he cut the ring from his hand. Um So... In that circumstance, he decides he, he, he's got the ring, which he's taken by force from Sauron and therefore banished Sauron and therefore apparently destroyed him. And so therefore he says, Hey, well, you know, now I'm going to, I'll hang on to his ring. Right. And I suspect it's, it, it doesn't necessarily, I think, have to be, Oh yeah, I really have plans for this, but rather I'm going to keep it because I can. You know, that he thinks, that he seems to think of so. And again, this is sort of the confidence, uh, to, to put it positively, that we've seen from Isildur in his previous actions. He seems to be a person possessed of great self-confidence. And, uh, I, I, it seems that that self-confidence, um, is really perhaps, uh, misleading him or even being manipulated, uh, by the ring here. Um, yeah, oh no, you don't have anything to worry about. You can keep, uh, Sauron's, little bobble you're above that um i you know i wonder if uh if if initially that seems to be something like his rationale mario what are you thinking 
Well, I think that you can say that I'm influencing him. I think the really interesting comparison to make between him and another free uh, music monologue is Sam, who made the World of Garden speech. I, said, I think if we just think of the, the Randy's monologues as like these rambling, instead of a dark lord, uh, you shall have a queen or a warmer's rambling nonsense, you're going to lose some of the more subtle manipulation the ring gives. So this very calm, I'll take this as wear guilt, to me sounds a lot like Sam's Let's Make the World a Garden speech. And it just shows you the vast ability of the ring to manipulate. Yes, yes. Yeah, no, I, I, that does seem to me a safe, a safe conclusion um, that he was manipulated in that way. I agree. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, Dave, you had mentioned John's comment about Saruman. Um, uh, John was just reminding me this does uh, that, that kind of self-confidence, um, that the dangerously misplaced self-confidence, um, is parallel to, to Saruman here, that Saruman thought he could handle it, right? He thought he, he did not realize that he would be trapped. He thought that he could do, um, that he could look into the Palantir and, uh, you know, if, if he did, you know, uh, confront, um, Sauron, then he could handle it and he couldn't handle it. And he was mastered by Sauron and he was mastered through the Palantir. Um, I, I think that John is a good parallel there. Um, that I, I think that you could argue that Isildur makes a similar, uh, kind of error. Laura? Oh, I was just going to make a comment about um, uh, why Isildur put his put his capital basically um, at uh, uh, minus Ithil, Ithilien. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, you know, I thought about that, and I thought, you know, what you know, what was he thinking? It, it was right next to Mordor, but um, Ithilien was a very beautiful place too. Mm-hmm. You know, and um, from from how it's described in the Lord of the Rings, um, it just seems like a, a nice place to live. And also, you know, Faramir has got his quarters there too. So there's something about it besides just the fact that it's just strategic position next to Mordor. Um, you know, there seems to be something about the land itself that that draws people in. So right, right. That's, that's just an aside. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I think that. That is a good point, and it even suggests a possible alternative reading, right? That it could not be arrogance. Even his his decision to put Minasithil there, as you say, might not be arrogance. It might not just be an act of defiance against Sauron and his servants. Um, you could almost read it as obliviousness, right? You know, him going to Ithilien and being like, this place is great. I like this place. I think I'll set up here. Oh, yeah, you know, okay, the, uh, you know, the, the, the black land is like, three miles away, but hey, you know, it's fine. Uh, you know, well, it's well, nice not, around here. Not oblivious, not oblivious necessarily, but perhaps wanting to protect such a beautiful land from um, the ravages of, of Sauron. So, And at the time he built it, Sauron was not in Mordor. Right. He wasn't personally there, but I don't think it was abandoned. Um, uh, that is, I don't think we have any reason to believe that it was abandoned. The ring raids are still around. Um Still, it was still a bad place. I, I would, I would have to think time. so. I mean, after the, um, after the war, uh, you know, after the war of the last alliance, um, you know, the the Numenorians occupy it. But, um, but prior to that, it doesn't seem so. And we're not told explicitly about um, where about sort of how Sauron left things when he went to Numenor. Um, because you're right, uh, you know. Uh, Isildur returns to 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 Middle Earth before Sauron returns uh, to Middle Earth. So when Sauron comes and sets up, yes. he finds Isildur there. Um, 
But again, it's clear that Sauron has left it in a position of strength, if only from the the fact, referred to just once very briefly, that Sauron set aside the ring. He apparently left the ring in Middle-earth when he went to Numenor. He didn't take it to Numenor with him, um, else it would have been destroyed um, with the fall of Numenor. You know, it would have been lost anyway um, with the fall of Numenor. So that does very strongly suggest that he had a strong place that he was leaving behind, guarded, um, that he left uh, his ring there. So... Um, yeah. Well, yeah. well, maybe that casts some light on the um, the character of Isildur. You know, maybe he is like Boromir, you know, wanting to use the ring to defend the fairness of city, just like he puts minus Ithil uh, right where it is to defend the fairness of Athelion. Yes. Yeah. You know, it's it, it's it is it is possible. I mean, it is it is interesting to think about. It's hard to know. Yeah, it is, but. But, I mean, I think you're, you're right to remind us of the significance of Athelion in that way. It's easy to think of, you know, uh, basically uh, the situation as it was in The Lord of the Rings, right? That is the frontier situation between Gondor and Mordor, um, and to kind of project that backwards. But, of course, we know the frontier situation was not, in fact, like that. Um, that they had they had built Osgiliath and Minas Ithil, and so so Ithilien and Minas Ithil were firmly Gondorian lands. Um, so it's not a question of of building a fortress in what would appear by the end of the Third Age to be in the middle of occupied territory, um, but rather a strong place to defend that part of their realm, which was, as you say, a valuable part of their realm uh, in in Ithilien. Uh, a couple of you, Mike and Dave, were wanting to talk about uh, one of the specific references made in the uh, uh, in the hunt in the in the death scene um, of Isildur. Um, let's um, let's. I'm I'm just looking for the passage here. So, okay, here it is um, on page two ninety five in my edition. Um, it's worth reading again, thinking in terms of the narrative voice of the Silmarillion here. Um, but Isildur was overwhelmed by a host of orcs that lay in wait in the misty mountains, and they descended upon him at unawares in his camp between the Greenwood and the Great River, nigh to Loeg, to Loeg Ningloron, the Gladden Fields, for he was heedless and set no guard, deeming that all his foes were overthrown. There well nigh all his people were slain, and among them were his three elder sons, Elendur, Aratan, and Kirion. But his wife and his youngest son, Valando, he had left in, in Imladris when he went to the war. Isildur himself escaped by means of the ring, for when he wore it, he was invisible to all eyes. But the orcs hunted him by scent and slot, until he came to the river and plunged in. There the ring betrayed him and avenged its maker, for it slipped from his finger as he swam, and it was lost in the water. Then the orcs saw him as he laboured in the stream, and they shot him with many arrows, and that was his end. Only three of his people came ever back over the mountains after long wandering, and of these one was Octar, his esquire, to whose keeping he had given the shards of the sword of Elendil. Okay, um, the specific question uh, uh, that uh, Mike had had was the line that hunted him by scent and by slot. Um, I really like that image. Literally, uh, what it means, of course, it means that the, the orcs are, are scenting his trail like hounds, and by slot just literally means the, uh, the, the, the slot that he leaves in the grass, the, the actual physical trail. So by sight and by scent, um, they are following his trail as he goes off invisible 
from the battlefield and they find uh, so they find um by sentence slot where he entered the river and that's why they're standing right there with bows when he suddenly becomes visible uh in midstream um but what i am really interested in in this moment is the way that we get and i said it seems to me sort of fitting given the fact that isildur is one of the characters of these numenorean guys um, isildur is one of the characters that we get most we certainly still don't get all that much but we do get more of him character wise than we get of other characters and um there's this this moment of 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 pause in the narrative um and we do zoom in to quite intimate detail here. We get a sort of a summary of the battle. You know, we, we don't get any detail of the battle. We're in full summary mode. Um, you know, just talking about the genealogical significance of this. You know, we sort of digress in the middle. Um, uh, in, you know, right before the battle, the, you know, the sentence before the battle, we get a, but oh, and by the way, these are the names of his kids and, and, uh, uh, you know, and his youngest son who's in, in Imladris. But then we get, you know, right immediately from there, um, in the next sentence, you know, but the orcs hunted him by scent and slot until he came to the river and plunged in. Um, the way we get this, this, this really detailed image, these, these, these clear images, um, of the orcs on his scent. Remember the snuffling noses of the tracker orcs that was, that was the, the, the tracker orc that was hunting Sam and Frodo in, in, in Mordor. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're prompted, uh, to really visualize the pursuing orcs, um, and the struggles of Isildur again, as he doesn't just, uh, swim in the river, but as he labored in the stream, because of course he's swimming in armor. Remember, he's just been in battle. Um, and uh and there they shot him with many arrows and that was his end um so we do get this one brief close sort of narrative close up of Isildur's death scene which is in its way an interesting kind of stylistic testimony to him um yeah mike yeah that was uh, my reading as well i mean the king here is reduced to a wild animal the orcs are portrayed as hunting hounds and the verbs uh convey the desperation of plunging into the river, laboring in the stream. And so in a few sentences, you get the, the, the context here, which is one of, uh, of the, the king sort of laid low, completely laid low, and then shot like an animal in the water. Yes, yes. Um, it really does um, place the uh, the arrow wounds of Isildur into a different context there, doesn't it? Um, of course, the connection between Isildur's death and Boromir's death um, was, you know, was always something that I found very significant, you know, the way in which, um, you know, the emphasis that's placed on the fact that it was orc arrows that killed um, Isildur, and then we see Boromir in the end killed by arrows. Um, and that was, that was always, you know, from the Lord of the Rings, that's always kind of what I primarily took. That's sort of the image that I have of it. But what this description, uh, Mike, just as you were emphasizing, is really... Um, conveying to us is how very different they are. Boromir's death was quite dignified uh, compared to Isildur's. He is running away, floundering in the river in armor, and uh, uh, and is 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 hunted down and shot like game. Um, it is a a very ignominious end uh, for you know the king uh, you know, for the the high king of the Numenorians, the last high king of the Numenorians in Middle Earth until Aragorn. Jordan, go ahead. 
Uh, yeah, I just wanted to talk a little bit about uh, what I feel like is a major theme of the book, uh, pride. Mm -hmm. I may have written a paper about it. Yeah, yeah. Flown to Albuquerque. You might have uh, done, yeah. But I know I might have. Um, I noticed that when, I mean, what seems to be the major fault for Isildur is that he, I'm trying to find the page now, I lost, is that he thinks all his foes have been destroyed. Yes. And so he's like, I, we need to set a watch. I'm so powerful and so great that I have dispatched of all of my foes. I wrestled Sauron to the ground <laughs> exactly. and cut the ring from his finger. Who could possibly go against me? Uh, and it seems that we're sort of not ending the book, but I mean, close to ending the book with a very similar start to the book of the fall of pride. Yes. Yeah, no, I agree. And it does really seem to point to that same pattern that we were seeing before that, um, that very great, uh, self-confidence and overconfidence. Yeah. He thinks he's on his victory lap here. Right. Uh, and that's why this is so unexpected. Uh, John makes a really good point. Um, it points to, you know, the, that, that, that image of the ring slipping away from Miss Ilder. John is, uh, uh, seeing that as a, as a metaphor for his possessing the great evil of the ring and attempting to keep it, uh, in good. If, if that reading is correct, if he is in fact, um, not just succumbing to the ring or, 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 you know, wanting to dominate the ring or in fact in some, you know, overt way beginning to turn to evil. If he thinks that he is just powerful enough and good enough to keep it without its affecting him, or if he thinks that he can turn it to good uses now that Sauron is gone, um, uh, he is deceiving himself. And, and, and again, and so I, I, I like that idea that John is suggesting of, uh, the ring slipping out of his grasp, um, being a metaphor for the way in which, you know, in a much larger sense, it is, uh, it, it, it has already, uh, slipped out of his grasp. It is, it is bigger and harder to hold than he seems to have thought it was. Um, we should turn to the elves here, the third age among the elves. So we, we have, you know, references to Rivendell, uh, and Lothlorien and the corruption of Mirkwood. Um, uh, Mike, you had, uh, mentioned, uh, in our, in our ancient two years old notes here, um, about the reference to the fact that north of the Argonath, there were powers more ancient, uh, providing defense. Um, that I believe is a reference to Lorien, um, and Galadriel. And it's one of the things which, um, you know, this is, uh, this is a moment where I think we have a, one of those, one of those, 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 those places where we can see an artifact of the composition process in Tolkien. It's such a common pattern in Tolkien when he writes a story one way and then that story gains new and different significance and becomes completely recontextualized, but he doesn't change it. He doesn't go back and alter it. He just deals with it as as is and kind of incorporates it or even doesn't fully incorporate it. The point I'm thinking of here um, is the location of Dol Guldur. When you look at the map of Middle-earth as it came to be uh, developed during the writing of The Lord of the Rings, you know, you gotta think Dol Guldur was a pretty lousy choice for Sauron. If he wants to stay, you know, kind of low key, wants to keep things under wraps, wants to sort of build his, uh, uh, build his power base without, uh, prematurely attracting the attention of the good guys, um, you know, within sight 
from from because uh, remember when when they're on Karen Amroth in Lothlorien, uh, they can see both. Remember, there's that scene when uh, when when Haldir is showing um, Frodo, right? He 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 can see uh, Karas Galathon in one direction, and he can see Dol Guldur in the other direction. Um, that's really not a great location, Sauron. I gotta say, you know, you chose poorly. Um, uh, where to put, <laughs> where to put your, your home base. And of course, it's because that was in The Hobbit. Um, you know, and Galadriel and Lothlorien weren't anywhere like there or anything. Um, so as the story unfolded, those things got placed quite close to each other. Um, again, hard to imagine Sauron saying, you know, Angmar, that was a good plan, uh, actually. You know, the far north up there, um, that was good. Um, geographically, that was, that was smart. Um, uh, Dol Guldur, not so much, but yes, um, it does seem to be Galadriel, um, particular, oh, excuse me, Galadriel and Celeborn, because everybody knows that Celeborn is really contributing very significantly to that. Um, but it's, it's, that, and that, that's, uh, how I understand that reference to, uh, to powers above, above the, uh, the Argonath. Um, but more, what are the, what are some of the sort of questions or observations you guys had about the elves and what the elves are up to, uh, in the Third Age? Let's see. I know that we wanted to talk about the fading of the elves. We should probably save the fading of the elves, though, uh, until maybe the end of this topic. Um, yeah, let's see. Uh, Chris, go ahead. As far as what the elves are doing in the Third Age, I guess with a, just a couple of exceptions, it seems like what they're doing is just staying in a holding pattern. The ones that want to leave, they're going ahead and, and taking off, but you've got Galadriel and Elrond with their rings hunkering down in their in their areas and uh, kind of just holding the status quo as much as they can and, and trying to enjoy the remaining time in Middle-earth. Uh, that's, I mean, we were talking, what, 3,000 years? That seems to be what they're doing for most of the time, from my perspective. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it really kind of does seem like the short answer is not very much, right? And that gets to be in some um, in some places and at some parts of the Third Age kind of difficult to understand what exactly was Thranduil doing with himself as the corruption is growing in Mirkwood? You'd think, uh, you know, he'd have gotten a little alarmed about this. Um, I'm not going to launch into a discussion of the Hobbit films, um, but, you know, that, that, that you can certainly see where that issue, uh, is sort of coming from. The, you know, the way that they have the isolationist versus, uh, interventionist stand, you know, viewpoints, uh, being voiced. Um, yeah, but he was like an active retreat as this, as this evil spread out from Dol Guldur. He was, he just kept pulling his lines back and back and back. He, no sense of, uh, no, at least we don't know of any kind of resistance that he might have done. He just kept pulling back. Yeah. I mean, in the book, I mean, you think about the, the, the place that we, where we see the wood elves in the Hobbit. Um, the forest is almost completely overrun. I mean, you know, you, you've got the, the, the paths, the elf road is still clear. The spiders don't, um, can't stretch their webs across the path or molest anyone who's on the paths. But, um, 
But other than that, the forest seems to be pretty much uh, gone into darkness. Um, but also, uh, I'm sorry, uh, yeah. Galadriel, can he talk to Galadriel? Hey, we've got this going on. It's almost in your backyard, too. Why don't we do something about it? It's like, I mean, both of them kind of are doing the same thing in a way. Yes, yes. No, I, I, I agree. I mean, it's one of the things, this is actually one of the elements, I think, of the story of the Third Age as Tolkien comes to construct it later on. And again, remember what he's doing is taking individual story elements and references that have been integrated in other stories that he's written along the way, and he's fitting them together into an overall history that makes some kind of sense. This is that the element of that history that I find personally least convincing. Uh, for exactly that reason. It's hard for me to imagine Thranduil and Galadriel um, uh, just sitting around for hundreds and even thousands of years uh, and not doing anything. Um, Matt and then Brandon and then Dave. Matt? Yeah, that, that gets to just the heart of one of the, the biggest frustrations I have when I'm reading The uh, Hobbit and Lord of the Rings is, is why aren't the elves more active? I mean, they live for thousands of years, and they're totally invested in just about every corner of, of lands, but but they don't seem very curious about what's going on outside their immediate realm and greater ramifications about what happens if evil spreads. And I don't see how they could live there that long, even if they eventually plan to leave and not think it's that they have a stake in what happened. Yeah. And that is, I think, in this context, that is, hearing about this in the very tail end of the Silmarillion, in the context of the whole, um, of, you know, all the stuff that we've seen in, you know, with the, el the elves doing in the Silmarillion um, to this point. We've seen them being very active. You know, we have seen, you know, the, 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 the leaguer, um, uh, where they have, you know, besieged Morgoth and tried to keep his evil uh, at bay. We know they do care about Middle-earth. We know that the elves, at least the elves of the Noldor especially, and the Sindar, who are still there, are elves who love Middle-earth Middle enough that they chose to stay rather than returning back to Elvenholm. So, uh, so they obviously care. Why don't they do anything? And, you know, Matt, I think that you're... I think you're right to suggest we can see something which seems to be like a, just a totally different policy, a totally different outlook um, in the Third Age. You sort of wonder if the elves just really do feel differently. Like they, this is in a sense perhaps, a, uh, maybe you could call it a lesson that they've learned from the First Age. In the First Age, they took the defense of Middle-earth into their own hands. They stood up to Morgoth. They attempted to defeat Morgoth. They hoped to defeat Morgoth. They failed. They couldn't defeat Morgoth. Um, in the end, it's, it's, you know, one way perhaps to explain it is that the elves, even in the third age, you know, the fourth age is the end of the, is, you know, is the beginning of the age of men and, and, and the time of the elves is done. But even in the third age, you know, they've, they, the clock is ticking, right? And they're still leaving over the course of the time. So many have left or are leaving. Um, they're lesser now. There are fewer of them and they're weaker than they were. But that doesn't even seem to be the main thing. It's not just like, well, you know, if we could, we would. No, it doesn't seem like they would actually even, even th that they, most of the time, they, they don't even seem willing to do what they, uh, to do what they, 
to do what they can. It looks like uh, <laughs> I'd better, I'd better, Dave, I'd better let Dave talk because apparently I'm, uh, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm stealing Dave's point. Dave, you want to, do you want to try to recover any last shreds of your, of your thoughts that I've just stolen? No, you just decimated. <laughs> it's like the seminar never stopped. <laughs> Two years later, and you're stealing my, stealing my points again. <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah. Sorry. Um, well, I just wanted to pile on to that to your your comment. I was I was thinking the same thing. I wonder if one of the fundamental tensions that we see in throughout the Silmarillion is uh, the 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 role of the elves in Middle Earth. Mm-hmm. Um, they they're born there. They're called to Valinor. Um, and remember, we spent a lot of time um, on. Uh, whether it was right for the Valar to call them from Middle Earth back to, to Valinor, and then and then they went back, and they're they're um, you know there was always something fishy about the elves who stayed behind, and then the elves who leave Valinor, the Noldor, who come back. Obviously, they're in, it's not like they're they're certainly not as pure as driven snow. Um, and even though even though they do come and hem in Morgoth, and there seems to be sort of um, collateral benefits to this, and a lot of people are happy to have them. Thingles have to have them. It, it's not. They're not there to help Middle Earth. They're there for revenge and to get something back. Um, and and I do kind of wonder if what we see in the Third Age is, as you said, sort of a, a more of an acceptance right. uh, of the limitations of their ability to actually intervene. And yet, something we I recall us discussing um, uh, when you know toward the end of the seminar last time was this notion that that we're still suspicious of the motivations of the elves who stayed behind, right? Um, you know, that, that even the ones who stayed behind for all their love of Middle-earth, we still kind of wondered, like, the guys building rings and stuff, Galadriel, if they're not still falling, they're still not up to the same mischief they were up to before, wanting to, to rule wide realms and that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you're right. I mean, you, you think about those, um, um, that passage in the... In, Earlier in the Silmarillion, when when the Noldor first arrive back, and of course you remember that the the Sindar have been besieged. You know the the orcs had almost completely overrun Beleriand, and then the Noldor come back and destroy them, and all the Sindar are like, "Oh, hooray!" In the nick of time, wow, what a great thing! Did the Valar send you guys? Because that was awesome, right? And everyone's like, "Well, this is kind of awkward, actually." Um, no, because uh, you know, and and again, we are very aware, as you say, of the. Um, of the less than ideal circumstances which actually have driven Fanor um and the rest of the Noldor to return. And yet they have done good. Um, um so yeah, it it's 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 very complicated. Both the elves who are still involved in Middle Earth, that seems you know, there there seems sort of questionable motivations there, but not to do anything also seems kind of questionable. Brandon, you've been patient. Yeah, it just it sounds to me that um that all these arguments are arguments that Sauron gave. Um, you know, why won't Elrond and Gilgalad help? Maybe they don't want other lands as blissful as their own, you know. Do they want Middle Earth so dark and desolate? You know, um it, it just sounds like I think Elrond is playing a pivotal role just by preserving um and to some extent Galadriel. Um it, Elrond is preserving war and myth and um and uh sort of uh, providing uh, housing to the weary and um, to the and of, of both kindreds to which he descends from. You know, that will play a pretty pivotal role. Um, it doesn't seem like, you know, I mean, he's, he's aware of, of 
things that are going on. But I think at this point, preservation and of tradition is, is, is somehow in and of itself an act against evil yes. um, in some ways. Yes. You know? Yeah, no, I agree. And that certainly, um, you know, Brandon, moving from that, of course, the immediate topic that that leads us to is the three rings, right? Because that's the power of the three rings. The, the, the greatest accomplishment of, you know, the latter elves, the post first, the post first age elves, you know, the second and third age elves, um, are the, the three elven rings, right? The, the making of the three elven rings. And they are, um, you know, they are, that's what they're designed for. You know, they're designed to preserve all things unstained. That seems nice, right? That seems like a good thing to do. But even that is something that is not, uh, I think completely unambiguous. You know, I think there, 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 there are even some issues there too. Uh, Jordan and then Jason. Jordan? Uh, so before we hop into rings of power and such, I just wanted to say that I think the main reason why the elves don't do anything is because they no longer have a wonderful king like Fingolfin to <laughs> lead them into glorious action against a horrible enemy where clearly he would have thrown more or a sar onto the ground and wrestled him much better than a sildor so yeah, uh, that's the real problem yeah I, I agree i agree uh yes nobody around even just to say uh uh what would fingolfin do absolutely <laughs> jason go ahead well actually my question related to the the three rings and i know we talked about this previously but the the nature of their power and how they seem to be tools more preservation than of anything offensive, I guess, when we had the point about why aren't Galadriel and Thranduil getting together to go after, you know, Dol Guldur, and my thought was that, based on the discussion we had earlier, it was sort of like the power of the Three Rings maybe didn't necessarily lend itself to that, uh, that type of action. And also, that I guess that's tied into something we said earlier about how the Last Alliance was seemed to be a kind of tipping point for the influence of the elves on uh, macro affairs, I guess, in, in Middle Earth. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. I agree. It doesn't. I mean, and and that I think is the important thing. And again, I think it's one of the things that is suggested, even just by the nature of the elfin rings of power. Um, it's not just what the elves are capable of doing or not doing, but what they're interested in doing. You know, what they themselves are focused on. They're not. They're not focused on. You know, as you said, macro involvement. They're they're focused on the preservation of things. Um, they are fundamentally sort of, you know, backwards oriented, that is oriented back towards the past and towards preservation, not towards, you know, the, the forging of a brighter day for Middle Earth. Um, Laura? Oh, I had, I had lowered my hand because, um, everybody stole my points. But, uh... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> you know, I think, that, um, you know, especially the elves of Mirkwood, I mean, they really are just not, I mean, we laugh about there's no Fingolfin, but they really are not the same as the elves of the First Age. I, I mean, they definitely are not as strong. They're not as powerful. No, Nobody's been to Valinor. Um, they're really just concentrating on, you know, doing what elves do, which is, you know, making things good in their little realm and not worrying too much about the bigger picture. I mean, even if you think about Elrond, you know, he's got Rivendell. It's beautiful there. He does send people out every once in a while, but, you know, he's not leading armies out in, into the world, right. you know, and, and neither is Galadriel. So I think, you know, the elves, as they get um, 
as they get weaker as the ages pass, they seem to, you know, go in among themselves. And the Merkwood elves, you know, if you project into, you know, the imaginary future of today, um, you know, it, it, when, you know, in, in this other realm, when, um, you know, the narrator talks about elves being, you know, the small creatures that we see today. So that's kind of, you know, it's, it's, they're starting into their decline. They only have control of, the, of their immediate area. So, and I think when Tolkien wrote The Hobbit, too, he was thinking of elves differently than he thought of them later on. You know, I think he was thinking still a little more that they belong to this world of scary spiders and an enchanted forest, basically. Right. And they're just a part of that. Yes. Rather than being part of a bigger picture that that happened later. So so there's a little retcon trying to trying to fit them into. Exactly. You know, yeah. Bigger, I mean, that, bigger picture. Yeah. It's one of the things that I think is 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 so typical of the situation that Tolkien found himself in, because I agree the wood elves living in a Mirkwood almost completely overrun by darkness and spiders um, is a product of like, it's, you know, that, pro that, that, that situation, which considered just in the big picture of the history of the third age of middle earth seems so improbable. Like, how do you get to that spot? Um, well, but that's not the point. The point is you have to get to that spot because that's the spot that we first entered this place um, in The Hobbit in 1937. So unless he's going to go back and totally redo The Hobbit, which he wasn't at that point, um, then uh, we have to somehow bring history to that point. Um, and, and that's why I, 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 you know, I think, you know, when you really look at it closely, this is... The, so, one of the elements of his retroactive construction of third age history that I find least persuasive, um, for that reason. But, um, but yeah, I, I, I do agree with you when we get the, when we saw the elves there in the Hobbit, I think that they did have a, um, they did have a very different, um, kind of effect. Um, John is suggesting an interesting idea about sort of elves serving as stewards of the world until, you know, mankind kind of grows up to take charge, you know, sort of seeing the passing from the age of the elves to the age of men as a kind of passing of the torch, um, you know, from one race to the other. Um, and I, you know, I would say I, I agree in one sense that that is, you know, sort of a description of what happens, you know, I think in particular of the conversation that Gandalf has with Aragorn, um, when uh, he's talking about the, you know, when Gandalf uh, talk after his coronation is talking about, you know, how he will keep alive the 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 memory of the old, of you know of the elder days and, um, you know, there's there's so you know in that sense there's 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 a very clear way in which Aragorn in particular and you know Bilbo Frodo and Sam uh, to a you know in a different sense are the you know inheritors of that older world and you know they they are in fact the heirs of the elves and and the torch has been kind of passed to them from that side of the fence um that seems to work I'm not sure it does so well from the other side of the fence that is if we think of it from the elves and what the elves are doing i, I don't think it doesn't seem right to say that the elves in the third age that their goal was to pass the torch to humans and that they were sort of you know uh, raising them up in order to, uh, uh, to, to, to take over things when they retired. Um, that's of course a silly way to, to describe it, but I don't, it's, you know, thinking about it from that side, I don't think it works, but it does kind of look that way from the other side to some extent. Nick? Yeah. Do you mind if I just backtrack just a second sure. back to the rings? Sure. Absolutely. Okay. Okay. So in, in the letters of Tolkien, letter 212, 
he says that to attempt by device or magic to recover longevity is thus a supreme folly and wickedness for mortals. Longevity or counterfeit immortality is the chief bait of Sauron. It leads to sm the small to a golem and the, and the strong to a ring wraith. So we were talking about briefly about the rings and how they they might be inherently the creation of them might be inherently unnatural. Um, and it, it sounds like Tolkien would agree, but I, I don't know. I have to. I like. I like to look at it a different way. I, I, I like to look at it from a motivation standpoint. So you have the three rings. They were created by uh, Celebrimbor, I, I believe. Mm -hmm. And but but the the power of those three rings was was to benefit everyone around the ring bearers. So Lothlorien is is created and maintained by Galadriel. Um, the ring that Gandalf has. Um, he's able to instill, you know, ins inspire people to fight tyranny or whatever. And, and so the power works through these people to help everybody else collectively. Whereas the, the rings that are attributed to Sauron, they're, they're distinctly different. They, they're meant to benefit the person and the individual, uh, mainly Sauron. But in, in the short term, it, it benefits even the ring rays. Um, so, so I guess that's that's just that's another side of things. Looking at the motivation, I'm not I'm not sure that the you know the creation of the rings might not be inherently uh, wicked or unnatural in and of themselves. Right, I agree. Though, though you see the parallel, right, even from the description that you were just giving it. I mean, you're right that it's different, and I think that that um, that that difference is is a really crucial one. And I really like the way that you put it. It's you know, the, the, the elven rings are fundamentally outward focusing and they're not really designed to give power to the wielder, uh, to do stuff and to dominate things, but rather to preserve other things and to heal other things. Um, it's all for the benefit of others. Whereas the other rings, the rings that Sauron, uh, made, are all self-focused to preserve the life and increase the power of the men who wield the nine, uh, to ultimately, in the way they applied it, to increase the wealth and the power and influence of the dwarves who, who hold the seven, and of course, uh, the dominating ring of power itself. Um, so from, from that point of view, they are polar opposites, the three rings and the rest of the rings. But also implicit in the way that you were describing them, Nick, is that all, is that parallel, right? The fact that all of them are focused on preserving things, on extending things, and that that in individuals is unnatural, right? If you take, you take a, a hobbit and you preserve him, you know, you get at the least uh, you know, butter scraped over too much bread. At the worst, you get Gollum. Well, no, at the worst, I guess you eventually get a wraith. Um, you know, so you've got, you know, you've got Fro, you've got Bilbo, you've got Gollum, you've got the Witch King. We can see what happens when you, um, you, you know, when you, when you try to, to, to sort of keep that going, the way that that's, that that kind of evil, uh, and desire for personal dominion undermines itself. But again, there is a sense in which the elven rings do have that in common. It's not that they're preserving the life; that they're 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 expanding the life, or no, of course not expanding. That's the that's the problem. Extending the life um, of the wielders for the very good reason that the wielders of elven rings have no reason to to expand their life or to extend it. However, um, there's that there's that same idea of let's 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 keep things, let's hold things. Uh, 
the way that they are. And that holding, you know, it, it does, you know, when you sort of put them next to the other rings, it does lead me to at least the question, is that a bad thing? Um, you know, again, Lothlorien's a really nice place, but um, at the end of the day, is it a good idea? Really? I'm not 100% sure. Jordan, what are you thinking about? Um, so mine wasn't specifically about that. That's okay. Uh, <laughs> no problem. Uh, I was, I, I actually had a question about, uh, rereading this chapter for today. Um, the rings confused me. Okay. Because it says that Sauron doesn't have a hand in them. Right. But they're still controlled by him. Yes. And that there are, in fact, a bunch more than three. They just only keep three. Right. So the, first of all, the poem is wrong. Uh, it's not three rings for the elves. There's a bunch of them. They just have three left. Uh. But secondly, like, so, and I know there's no actual answer to this. How does he control rings he had no hand in making? Right. Okay. Well, my understanding of that, and you're right, the the three rings are not in that sense unique, though what made them different, the other rings, the lesser rings, um, the implication, I think, the implication is that Sauron did assist in the creation of those. So you do have some of these other lesser elven rings, which do bear some of Sauron's own uh, corruption in them. Um, and for the record, it seems, I don't know, it's, you know, this, this is what Gandalf was referring to when he says, you know, when he said that uh, um, it, that, that was his very first thought when Bilbo had his invisibility ring um, that he, uh, uh, that he, uh, that Bilbo had found one of these lesser elements. Um, however, um, so, so th- that seems to be the distinction between the three and the rest of them is that these three are the main, the big three that Celebrimbor made. He was just, you know, he was just practicing with the other ones. These were the, these were the, the, the main products and they also were totally untouched by Sauron. Um, in the Silmarillion, it says that that's why Sauron had to pour so much of his own native power into the Ring of Power. The reason that he had to make, in the end, himself so dependent upon the Ring by putting so much of himself into it uh, that without it, if it were destroyed, he would become almost nothing, was because he was controlling... The th- he, he he wanted it to dominate the Three Rings, but it dominated them, in a sense, from 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 without... Um, he, the three rings were great rings, were, 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 were great rings. They were, they were very powerful. One thing that you notice very quickly when speaking about these kinds of things is how vague your language becomes. I, you know, I'm going to keep using words like they're very powerful. They're, you know, huge in some sense because it's such an undefined sense. Again, this is, this is the power of the rings, um, is one of the places where, you know, talking about how magic functions and the nature of magic in Tolkien gets really challenging. It's really hard just to speak of. But um but uh, uh but anyway, what it says is he's trying to dominate the um the the Elven rings from from outside again, not because he has arranged them. He doesn't have to manipulate the nine rings. Um the nine rings are tainted already. So he just has to let them go, as he does with the seven rings. He's not directly controlling the seven rings. Um, the seven rings are going on and doing their thing. The nine rings are going on and doing their thing, even when Sauron doesn't have uh, the ring of power. Um, he is not, he does not have uh, the, the ruling ring 
doesn't work as some kind of remote control unit um, that uh, can operate and manipulate all of the other rings of power, which are like, you know, magically hardwired to it. That doesn't seem to be how it works. Um, the nature of the Nine and the nature of the Seven were corrupt from the beginning because Sauron made them or, or participated in the making of them, at least. Now, he made those. Um, with the Elven Rings, he didn't make those, so they're not intrinsically corrupt. Left to themselves, they're going to do good and not harm. Um, they're not going to corrupt their users. So therefore, he wants to make a ring which will enable him to have power, which will give him control over those. So he can basically hijack the three rings from without and twist them and dominate them and to, and, and dominate those who use them. Um, and who, and who wear them. They, w their thoughts will be revealed to him and he will be able to control them. Um, again, not because there was any intrinsic connection between the one and the three, but he would use the one ring as the instrument to give him power over those other rings. Um, why would that happen? Why would the one ring be necessary for that? I don't know, because uh, it, uh, presumably it has something to do with the lore of the rings of power. Remember, he taught Celebrimbor how to do this. He didn't, he didn't make the three rings, but he showed Celebrimbor how to do it. So there's apparently, uh, some way in which by using the same craft, he can, uh, he can sort of, you know, intervene and hijack those three rings. And that seems to be what he's trying to do. That anyway is my own understanding of the relationship between the ruling ring, um, and the three. And what we see is he himself, when he takes up the one ring and exerts it to try to dominate the other three, it's not that it fails, but it has an unanticipated side effect. And the unanticipated side effect is that he himself is revealed to them too. It turns out the link between the ruling ring and the three rings that he was attempting to connect functioned, but it was a two-way street. And it appears that Sauron didn't anticipate that. Um, so as soon as he puts on the ring, they are aware of him and immediately take off their rings so that he doesn't have control over them, so that he never gains the power and the, uh, and the influence that he was trying to get. So anyway, that's my, that's my basic understanding of it. Um, let's see, uh, Dave, I think that, uh, um, John had, uh, something he wanted to say about the fading of the elves. I think we, we, we might as well go there now. Correct, he did, and I'll happily read it. Uh, here's what he has to say. He feels that the chief theme of the Silmarillion's last chapter seems to be one of fading. The so-called, quote-unquote, magic of the elves slowly recedes into the West, and with them the memory of all that was before the dominion of man. John's question is, how did this theme of fading develop in this chapter? Uh, how much did the Lord of the Rings publication shape or mold the structure and content of this chapter? Um, and I would tack on to that. Is it, I, I assume this is, this is the case, Tolkien being a medievalist, you know, sort of has this view that the world is diminishing. So I wonder if perhaps that, that's kind of the, 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 the place he's starting from in, in creating, in, in all of his sub-creation. But is this, is this the story he's telling or did this just kind of fall out in the writing? No, I think it's, it's definitely the story that he's telling. Um, I think it's, it's, when you look back, it ends up being one of the oldest themes in all of Tolkien's writings. Um, you go back to his earliest Silmarillion stuff. You go back to the Book of Lost Tales, the stories he was writing way back in, you know, the teens, you know, when, when, he, when, when, you know, Tolkien himself was in his mid twenties. And, uh, 
what you see um, are legends of ha- the times, you know, sort of the, the great times of the elves, you know, the ancient times of the elves. But ultimately, the point, sort of the, the, the end goal of all of the stories is how did they come to fade? How do we get to our current situation? The, the, the frame of his stories was always, um, within the sort of the theoretical history of our world. Um, and way back in the earliest conception, that was even more true, uh, than it came to be later on. Um, that is to say, he was, he was, you know, connecting the Isle of Elvenholm with England and, 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 and all that stuff, um, even more. But, um, we, so, so anyway, so he, he, that idea of the current situation right now, where our world only retains dim memories of the elves, and if there is any magical presence, if there's, if there's any fairy presence in our world now, um, it's very faint and, but a dim echo, and, um, and, you know, even the, the, the little miniature, uh, uh, flower fairies that he, uh, came to, to, to hate and speak against, Later in his career, back in his early career, he was okay with them, and he kind of accepted them as a sort of a starting point. And his question was, um, you know, he, he never accepted that that's what fairies really are, or that's all that fairies are, but basically he accepted it as a, as a, as a theoretical starting point. It's like, okay, fine. So we have all these Victorian stories of little, of little bluebell fairies. Okay. So the question is, we need to tell the stories about how elves diminished. How did they get to the place you know, how did, how did we end up at Midsummer Night's Dream? <laughs> Basically, it's one way, uh, very crude way to sort of summarize the whole, uh, sort of trajectory of the Silmarillion material as he first conceived it way back in the teens and twenties. So, um, so that idea of fading and loss is an old, old theme. Um, the way that the sort of the hard line gets drawn gets extended because i mean again the the end of the first age was the was the line originally where you know that was the end of the elder days um that was the that was the beginning of a fading time um because remember back in the day that was all there was there were the elder days and that was the end of the story and then it kind of comes into modern days from there um it wasn't until all of a sudden we got in a hole in the ground there was a hobbit that eventually the third age was born and the third age then had to be integrated and Numenor was also relatively late um in coming it was not part of his initial conception so um so you get in a hole in the ground that there was a hobbit and then we want that we want to do the atlantis thing he wants to do the Numenor thing um and so he integrates those things into the second and the third age of middle earth and then now now the fading time comes at the end of the third age that's the final conception um so he's displaced it some, and because of the nature of the stories that have been told there in The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, um, the, uh, and of course the Akalabath and the, the, the Numenor story, the quality of the fading has altered. You know, that sort of the, the, the tone and, and, and emphasis of the story is different than it was, you know, in the Book of Lost Tales. But the fundamental concept of the, the fading of the elves is, uh, is, 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 there pretty much from the beginning. Um, so Nick, you wanted to add something? Yeah, just in addition to that, um, Tolkien being 
a Catholic and these stories essentially being pagan or pre-Christian, it, it, it seems. Um, it seems that the, the fading of the elves and, and the, the Valar leaving Middle-earth is, is necessary for Tolkien to kind of set up, you know, the, the coming of the incarnation mm -hmm. of a Christ-like being. Uh, not, not, not to say that Tolkien was planning on writing that, right. just to kind of, he, he's setting up a backstory to our, to our own world. And and so so the elves need to fade out, and and it's it's understandable that the, that man, um, you know, they they're not aware of their fate. They're told in very vague terms, you know, they're they're not bound to this earth, and their fate lies elsewhere. But they're told that from the elves, um, through the elves, from the Valar. So they haven't even I don't I don't think they've talked to the Valar. I think this is coming from the elves. So when when the elves and the Valar leave, then it just it goes just goes from generation to generation. So I. And that's it's obvious that you know the it's not very satisfying to to have that just coming down generation to generation. So you you, you kind of need that right that setup. Right. Yeah, you're right. I mean, in that sense, the fact that he um, was never telling the story of a completely imaginary fantasy world. You know, Tolkien, of course, gets lots of credit, obviously very well deserved for world building. But in a sense, he's not world building. That is, he he was never trying to build a completely different world. Um, the frame of this was always as a setup for our own world in our own time. Um, so you're right. And that is an important element of it. In that sense, the fading of the elves and the dominion of men was always inevitable. It has to happen because that's the world that we know. That's the world that has come to be. And, um, and so that is the destiny of these stories always from, from the beginning. So the elves have to fade. They have to leave. Um, you know, you can't have, we're just talking about why are the elves in the third age not more active? Um, you can't have, you know, Elrond and Galadriel and Thranduil and the rest of them all get together and say, you know what? We've decided we're going to be very active and we're going to try to prevent all evil for the rest of history. Because, hey, we're, we're immortal. We can do that. So we're not going anywhere. And anytime we see evil going on, we're going to go and stamp it out. And that's the way it's going to be from now on. Well, that's not an option, actually, right? So how does he get us from there to here? fading, you know, and their departure. Um, and so again, I think in some ways coming back to the conversation we had before, I think we can see the choice of the elves of the third age increasingly to withdraw, you know, the way that their whole sort of strategic outlook alters does seem to sort of fit within, um, the overall, uh, um, the overall structure of history as, as Tolkien gives it to us here. Um, Okay. Uh, anybody want to make comments about the the Astari? We should. T I want. I, I I want to get to the uh, Lord of the Rings stuff um, at the very end, but um, I want to. Uh, I, I I I don't want to skip over the wizards because I know people wanted to talk about the wizards. Anybody have anything they want uh, in particular question they wanted to ask or uh, an observation they wanted to make about about the wizards here? Brandon, go ahead. Yeah, I just wanted. I thought it was pretty cool that uh, Kieran, the, the shipwright, gives um, Thorander his uh, his ring um, at the end. And also, I think it's 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 pretty interesting. You know, we talked about um, Thorander um, sort of um, under the tutelage of uh, perhaps Nienna. but if 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 that's true, who would um, Saruman be under the tutelage of? We tell him we we're told that he's you know good at smithcraft. And, has a sweetness of voice that sounds like Saruman. I mean Sauron, but um, but you know where would you, you know? 
I don't know. It just just seems very very odd. But I found it pretty cool that you know Kier and the shipwright kind of chose uh, Gandalf on Thorandir to um, to entrust that one ring to the secret fire. Yeah, yeah, you know, and that's I I I agree. I mean, I I do I do love that passage. Though, of course, one thing I, I'm always. Uh, you know, I always have to uh, uh, sort of pause for a second um, because it's hard not to remember how sort of odd it is that um, Kierden had that thing to start with. Um, you know, it's for this is the ring of fire and herewith maybe thou shalt rekindle hearts to the valor of old in a world that grows chill. But as for me, my heart is with the sea and I will dwell by the gray shores guarding the havens until the last ship sails. Um, yeah, whose idea was it to give Kierden the shipwright the the ring of fire in the first place? I mean, seriously. I mean, okay, like I get the fact that you know you got three elven rings. It makes sense, right? You you you, you get has one, and 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 you give another one to Gilgalad, and you give another one to to Galadriel. Fine, uh, and you know then they all start dying off, and so, um, uh, so you have to. Uh, uh, you know, Kierden, it makes sense, you know, he, that he would make the cut, uh, that all, you know, seems, that all seems plausible, but, um, you know, it's, um, it's just kind of funny. I, I, I just, you know, the, the idea of, of Kierden the shipwright, the, the, the least, uh, interventional, the least fiery of all of the elf characters, um, you know, basically you can see that he, 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 you know, he has it, um, only as, a um, only as a, uh, a placeholder, you know, he, he's only keeping it in order to hand it off, you know, that he sees that clearly as his, as his role. Dave, go ahead. Excellent. I have my opportunity to steal Matt's comment now, <laughs> right out of the chat. As, as Matt reminded us, uh, Kieran, has a history of being a gossip and a busybody. So, uh, so, so maybe it's connected to that somehow. And he used to do some kindling of hearts back in the day. <laughs> yeah, he just didn't necessarily turn them to the most positive of things. <laughs> right, right. Uh, here, maybe you can do some actual good with this thing. I just tick people off, actually. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Maybe he learned his lesson. True, true. Now, Brandon is pointing out, I see, in the uh, uh, in the text chat here, that Kierden was there, you know, on the slopes of Mount Doom at the final battle. Um, so, you know, it's not like we can, it's, you know, we shouldn't imagine Kierden being completely... Uh, uh, completely passive and, uh, and never going anywhere and doing anything. I mean, the guy does get out occasionally. Uh, but, um, but yeah, yeah. I kind of, I kind of get the impression that they just really couldn't think of anybody else. And we're just, uh, hoping that, uh, if they gave it to Kierden, maybe he would run into, since he's at a, you know, a port, a place of transit, <laughs> maybe he'll run into someone better. <laughs> <laughs> we uh, we, we got to find a buyer for this thing, and Kierden's really the most likely to run into somebody. You know, I don't know who, but uh, <laughs> not to mention the fact that uh, except for the wizards and possibly Glorfindel, everybody Kierden runs into is going in the other direction. You know, so uh, uh, unless he's unless he's looking for somebody to take it to Valinor with them, uh, you wouldn't think he'd get much traffic going in the right way. But um, but yes, yes. True enough. Um, but, but no, exactly. That, that does seem to be 
that does seem to be the way that it goes. That, that I mean, who else would they give it to? Right. I mean, there were several logical candidates when the three rings were first in place. I mean, you know, you had, um, you know, when they're forged, you've got Celebrimbor and you've got Goadriel and you've got Gilgalad and you've got Elrond and you've got Círdan. You know, there's there are a number of of uh, of people of significant stature. But after Gilgalad dies and Celebrimbor dies, whom do you give it to? Other than Círdan, I mean, Gorfindel, maybe I don't know. Um, he'd have been a pretty good choice. But uh, but anyway, it, it is it is it is fun, um, and and it, it it does lend the whole thing. Though again, though we get that that story told so briefly, it does lend it that sense of destiny. I think um, the way in which Círdan. Uh, uh, gets it really only in order to hand it uh, to Gandalf when he arrives, though uh, Círdan doesn't necessarily seem to have any idea that uh, uh, that Gandalf is going to, to be there. Um, okay, let's see. Uh, Jason, you had a thought? Yeah, on the point of Círdan, it, I was just thinking back, trying to think of, if I'm remembering correctly, Círdan is there pretty much throughout the entire history of Middle-earth. He's one of the earliest people. He's not... Uh, I don't remember seeing a record of his birth. I think he was one of the original people who maybe awoke uh, at Quivienne, as far as I can yeah, tell. Yeah, as far as we and know, so yeah. So he's sort of like a, a constant throughout the history of Middle-earth. And so in a sense, if, if the whole idea of the rings, like we were saying earlier, is one of um, preservation and uh, keeping in place things that need to be there, it's almost like Círdan would be a natural choice as being one of the people who would uh, wield one of those rings because he's there as, as sort of a constant presence throughout the entire history of Middle-earth. Right, right, exactly. And you think also the other major role that he played um, in several of the earlier Silmarillion stories, and this is uh, an aspect of Círdan's character that really seems to get more emphasis in some of Tolkien's later revisions of uh, of these stories. I, I am thinking, of course, in particular, of the Tuor story, which I've just been rereading um, over the last couple of days in preparation for our Unfinished Tales class, which is starting tomorrow. Um, but but one of the things that we see emphasized in a lot is, again, especially the later revisions of these stories, is Círdan as being the one who's in touch with Olmo. I mean, there's 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 another role that he plays, which is being the closest thing that that the elves of Middle Earth seem to have to a to a direct line to the Valar through Olmo. You know, Olmo is willing to communicate to Middle-earth, and Círdan is the one that he talks to more than anybody else. Um, so Círdan is more in touch. It's Again, in, in several of the stories, in the Tuor story we see this, in the Turin story we see this. Remember, it's elves from, um, you know, who, who, who have just come from Círdan, um, who are delivering the message of Olmo uh, to Turin, which he ignores, of course, to destroy the, the, the bridge. Um, uh, Círdan's involved with that. Um, anyway, this is, this is another significant role that he plays. So, you can say, you know, we were just joking about the fact that, uh, um, if he's, if he's holding the ring of power on the offhand chance that somebody comes into harbor that he could give it to, uh, statistically that seems kind of unlikely as the overwhelming majority of his traffic goes in the other direction. But, um, but again, if, uh, anybody in Middle-earth is gonna be you know, sort of clued into the plans that the Valar might have, um, and the fact that somebody might in fact be coming the other direction, uh, who could make better use of that ring of power than he could, um, it would be cured. And so in that way, actually, uh, Dave, see, you could turn that to a serious point that he, he would be the logical fence, uh, for the ring of power there. 
Um, yeah, good. Um, okay. Um, let's see. Any other uh, thoughts or questions about the uh, the wizards and the council? Um, I know that uh, you know. There's of course there's the questions of Saruman and Gandalf and Saruman's uh, being chosen uh, the head of the council. Um, a couple of you were asking, Chris. I think you were asking this uh, uh, this question in our notes from two years ago um, about how uh, um, how Saruman basically got elected. Um, Chris, let me see if you wanted to uh, to put that question here. Go ahead. Um, I'm, like Dave said earlier, I'm trying to remember what my point was <laughs> to, from two years ago. Um, um, well, I guess it gets back to the was, you know, a big deal is made out of Saruman, Saruman's persuasiveness. Was he persuading, you know, um, somehow, I, I'm saying this terribly, but somehow with his power, persuading subtly the other members of the council to become to, to become the chief of it um, kind of seems unlikely with the power of the other members, but I think that was something along the lines of what I was thinking of at the time. Right, right. Because, I mean, what we are told explicitly is that he doesn't fully persuade either Gandalf or Galadriel. Um, right. And this is another thing, it, it, it's this isn't in quite the same category for me um, as, uh, you know, as the question of what the elves were doing with themselves in the Third Age, as I was mentioning before. But this, too, does fall into the same general category for me. Um, story framework that Tolkien had to begin with and then um, wrote history around it. Yes. And you can see the history developing over the course of time. I mean, when we, uh, in, in our Unfinished Tales class, when we get to the parts about, uh, Gandalf and, and, uh, and Saruman, we can see as Tolkien goes along, he projects backwards into Gandalf and Saruman's relationship prior to the Lord of the Rings time frame. Um, much more active rivalry and distrust. Um, so that, uh, and to the point where it begins to, you kind of have to ask if Gandalf already distrusted Saruman quite as much as it looks like he does in Unfinished Tales, why did he go to Isengard in the first place in the Fellowship of the Ring to get captured? Why was he so surprised uh, when it turned out that Saruman had been corrupted by uh, by evil? But again... Those are those are later revisions that he's that he's doing. But again, you can see the 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 place where he seems to be stuck, the the the, the corner that he's trying to get out of. It seems um, in those particular passages um, are is 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 exactly that. How could Saruman have actually pulled the wool over everybody's eyes? Um, how could he have not only just existed in the council? but got himself appointed leader of the council um, and guided the council with crooked intentions without the wisest people in the world <laughs> picking up on the fact uh, that they were being I think played. This, I, I think this question partly grew out of my thought of, okay, who the heck is on the white, on the white council? Who is it made of? up of other than the obvious ones. Right. And I mean there's no answer to that. But. No, there's not. The 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 full you know, the uh the um you know the the minutes of the White Council meetings, you know, with the uh, with the attendance record and everything is never is never been released. So we don't know. I mean we know some you know, we know that Gandalf and, and uh Saruman were there. 
Um, Radagast, not. I'd forgotten that, actually. I had kind of assumed all of the wizards were there. I'd forgotten that all the wizards weren't there. But um, having just talked about Radagast uh, in the Silmarillion, it doesn't mention him, that only Saruman and Gandalf were there for the wizards. And, you know, the elven wise were there, Elrond is there, and Goadriel's there, and other elves. Um, but we don't know which ones, we don't know how many other elf lords, presumably, you know, some of the elf lords that we meet uh, at the Council of Elrond, I'm guessing Corfindel was in the Probably right not Kyrdan, or probably not Caliborn. Probably, yeah, probably, probably not Caliborn, he's still bitter about that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but again, Gorfindel's probably there. Kyrdan is there, I'm sure. Um, you know, we have, you know, Galdor from the Havens and Aristor of the household of, of Elrond, you know, do his sons, Elro here and Eladon, you know, do they make the cut? I don't know. You know, Gildor, um, you know, whom Frodo meets in the Shire, was he on the White Council? Who knows? We have no idea. Um, so, um, Again, we're just never, that's, that's never really explained. But, but Chris, you're right. You, you sort of have to imagine, based on how it's described here, you have to imagine that there were enough of those, you know, if you want to say lesser people on the White Council, um, who were convinced that even though Goadriel and, uh, and Gandalf remained, uh, you know, uncertain or uneasy, um, you know, Saruman was still nevertheless elected. Um, uh, let's see, uh, uh, Dave, you had, uh, uh, again in the two, uh, well, hang on a second, Dave, before I get to your comment, I want to call on Laura here. Laura, go ahead. Uh, I think you may have covered everything I wanted to say. Okay. Um, I did want to, I did want to I did want to give a shout out for, to Kyrdan though. I, I think the reason why he doesn't get a lot of press is because Tolkien would have had a hard time writing about him. I mean, he's such an otherworldly character. Mm -hmm. You know, he's, he's, uh, you know, we're presuming he's born on the shores of Quivienne and when the elves awoke. Um, so he would be really somebody we'd have trouble relating to. So I think that's one of the reasons why Tolkien didn't write a lot about him. But, you know, I mean, he saw, he, he kept, um, a group of elves going for three ages of the world. You know, I mean, he survived the fall of Beleriand. And so I don't think it would be, um, unusual at all for him to be getting one of the rings. Right, right. Um, although we may not have known, you know, what he was doing with it. Right. Um, and, you know, and it shows his perceptiveness that he gave it to Gandalf. Um, one of the reasons why um, um, Saruman was elected leader is because he came first to Middle-earth. He is the oldest, and we're told, although I think it might be elsewhere, that he was higher in stature over in Valinor, where they came from, too. Mm -hmm. So um, so he would be kind of the natural leader. Um, but Gandalf was a little more self-effacing and never wanted um, never wanted that power, and, and we're told that he was really the only one who succeeded in his mission. Right. Um, so, and, you know, following the whole theme of pride that goes through the Marillion, you know, it says something that the one wizard who um, who didn't have a lot of pride. Well, we're not counting Radagast because he totally gets off off the track, right? You know, eating too many mushrooms or whatever. <laughs> um. <laughs> yeah. 
um, you know, it, it's Gandalf with his with his humility and his sense of empathy and pity that um, you know causes him to be the one to succeed. But it does make you wonder what the Valar were thinking when they picked the people who are going to be wizards. You know, I mean, you think they they might have had a little more insight on who was going to be effective and who was not going to be effective. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, why did they send Radagast? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, you know, it's it's a good question. I mean, on the one hand, it's easy to understand, you know, in a general way, you can understand Radagast. I mean, he is, uh, you know, the friend of of birds and beasts, you know, the, the kind of connection uh, that Radagast seems to have with the natural world seems like, a you know, yeah. a good thing. But- but that hardly seems seems it hardly seems a qualification to be a wizard who's going to help um you know who who's going to help overturn Sauron. Yeah. So I, I mean I seem to remember something about him coming as a companion to Saruman. Yes. So maybe he wasn't really the, on the first level of the wizards. Right. Right. Um, yeah. But no. it ju- it just seems odd. It, it, you know, Radagast just seems just seems an odd choice to me. You're right that he's he so. is kind of a B-list wizard from the beginning. Um, but this is what well, we should. I'll, I'll come back to this when we talk about unfinished tales because a lot of the stuff that I'd want to say about this is really based more on the stuff that's in on unfinished tales than the stuff that's here in the Silmarillion. I don't want to. I don't want to cross the streams too much here, but. Um, uh, but based on based on what they're saying, um, based on how the wizards are described here in the Silmarillion, it does seem that there is a hierarchy among them, that Gandalf and Saruman are the two greatest of the wizards, that Radagast has a smaller role. That is to say, the idea that Radagast failed isn't explicitly said in the Silmarillion. Again, that's an Unfinished Tales thing. It's not explicitly said in the Silmarillion. Um, he doesn't play anything like Gandalf's role. Uh, in the story, but he didn't have Gandalf's job. He, that's that's not what he was supposed to be doing. For all we know, he was doing something that was terrifically useful in its own way. Um, uh, I, I, I don't know what it was uh, with the birds and beasts, um, but uh, you know, if Gandalf's job was to uh, was to go around and to help elves and men. Um, maybe Radagast's job was to go around and, you know, help, uh, you know, little furry animals and, and, and birds. And that was something that Yavanna would consider in sufficiently important to deputize somebody to do this. What did he accomplish? I don't know, because the story isn't about birds and beasts. It's about elves and men. And so we find out yeah. what Gandalf does, but not the impact that Radagast had. Yeah, you, you can. You can definitely feel the the Yavanna vote. There. Exactly right. Let's send this guy. And and that's you know and that's that's yeah exactly exactly. So, you know I don't know. Um, I I one could imagine a kind of completely alternate story. You know one one could imagine a um the War of the Ring from Radagast's point of view. <laughs> you know and uh, and uh, and talk and and have somebody who is. Not at all focused on the realms of elves and men, but entirely focused on the natural world itself, on the on the on the world of plants and uh, and birds and beasts. Um, and I would imagine the story would look very different from that point of view. Um, and Radagast would presumably play a significant role in that story, but I don't know. Um, so yeah, it's just one of the things that I think makes Radagast so difficult to to judge based on what we're told here. Um, yeah, Dave, go ahead. Oh no, I've now I've completely forgotten what the heck I was going to say. 
Um, I guessed. I, uh, one thing. One thing that I was. Yeah, one thing that I was. One thing that I was sarcastically is, commenting on. It is on the Eddie Silmarillion Chad. seminar. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it, it truly it, is. It is the Silmarillion <laughs> seminar all over again. <laughs> yeah, it really is. Corey's stealing my points. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm raising my hand and buzzing in with with actually no contribution whatsoever. <laughs> just to, apparently just to hear the sound of my own voice. Um, I do. I it, it, actually, it is an interesting thought experiment to wonder what they were thinking when they when they chose um, the Istari because their track record is pretty sucky. As far as we can tell, if we give Radagast half a point for for like not doing anything explicitly bad, <laughs> it's like one out of one point five out of five, right? Right, right. Well, see again though, this is this is where I uh, we'll talk about this more when we do the Astari uh, in the Unfinished Tales class because this seems to me something that Tolkien's ideas change around about uh, quite a lot. And I would say that that particular, I mean, that is a thing that Tolkien says, you know, that at most, um, you know, 1.5 out of five of the wizards accomplish anything good um, is, uh, is definitely an opinion that Tolkien expresses at one point uh, in his career, but not at all points of his career. And he seems in later days to take that back. Um, but, Anyway, it's uh, um, as I say, we'll 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 go into the the details of that more when we talk about unfinished is, tales. Is our is our interpretation of the Istari? I mean, are we supposed to interpret them as? Um, do, do we have any insight into basically how they were chosen? What their what their whether they indeed have a higher purpose given to them by the Valar, or if they were just kind of were they maybe just people who wanted to go or you know Maiar or whatever who wanted to go over there, and then the Valar you know uh, tried to tr- corral them into doing something useful, impose limitations on them. Do we have any? Any sense? Like, do we get any picture into that? It is. It is very interesting, and I. I think um, I'm going to steal Marielle's point. She. She asked a question earlier that was also very interesting to think about, which is why are they? Why are they like an order of wizards? Like, is there some importance into this notion of an order? Right. Yeah. Um, it's hard to think of. I mean, uh, that word, like the concept of the order of wizards. Um, suggests a kind of class or structure, you know, that, that, uh, um, you know, that they're part of some kind of system or something, which it's a little hard for me to understand what that means, uh, in that context. But, um, thinking about the, um, you know, that question of sort of the backstory of the wizards and who are they and what are they doing? That's a really complicated question to answer, not because there are no answers, but because there are like five answers. And, um, you know, I'd sort of think, okay, first of all, let's answer that question from the point of view of the Lord of the Rings. Given what we are told in the Lord of the Rings explicitly, if we knew nothing else, which, of course, you know, in the mid-50s, we didn't. Other than The Hobbit, we knew nothing else other than the Lord of the Rings. So, you know, uh, as a reader in, you know, 1957... Um, what conclusions could we draw about the wizards and who they are and what they're doing? Um, the, um, the answer would be they are clearly sent. They clearly do have a mission. Um, the two things in the Lord of the Rings that I would point to are, you know, first, of course, most explicitly Gandalf's discussion of his resurrection. Um, 
when, you know, he was sent back until his task is fulfilled. So it's clear that he was given a charge in the first place. He's been trying to, to, to fulfill it. It's not done yet. And so he's sent back a second time, uh, in his resurrected body, um, in order to finish his job. Um, his resurrected and upgraded body, we would have to point out. Um, so that's, that's one pretty clear piece of evidence we get from the Lord of the Rings. The other I would point to is Saruman's death. When Saruman dies and his, you know, that sort of vaporous spirit that rises from his body sort of turns to the west and then the wind come, rises up out of the west and blows it away. Um, there's, a, a, a fairly clear sense of judgment there that the those in the West have uh, uh, will not take him back because he has failed because he has um, because he has he has not done what he was supposed to do. Um, so I, I, you know, I th again from the Lord of the Rings perspective, they do they are spirits sent from the West who have been given a particular task. Um, in this, from the Silmarillion point of view here, this, this passage of the Silmarillion, you know, the one we're supposed to be talking about here tonight, um, which is clearly post Lord of the Rings, um, this takes it, takes that a little bit further, in particular the passage with Cirdan and the passing off of the ring that we've been talking about, um, that shows Cirdan's own insight into the mission that Gandalf has been sent on, and the fact that the Ring of Fire is likely to be very helpful for him in doing um, the job that he has been sent to do. Um, the other thing from the in the Silmarillion context, of course, that we should be remembering is the reference to Aloran and his connection to Nienna um, back in the in the um, uh, in the Valaquenta. You know, so that's the, you know, the, the, the other thing from the Silmarillion that we get, which we shouldn't forget about, um, which does directly bear on this question. Um, and that is, uh, you know, the wisest of the Maiar was a Loran. This is page 30 in the Valaquinta. He too dwelt in Lorien, but his ways took him often to the house of Nienna, and of her he learned pity and patience. Um, so, you know, he gets a mention here. Um, and the fact that he learns pity and patience, um, dwelling in Lorien and going to the house of Nienna, that does suggest, again, it's only an implication, but it does imply that he is willing to go on this mission, that he is sent <clears throat> out of pity, because he does have pity for the sufferings of the people of Middle-earth, and he wants to help them. Um, that does seem to be um, how that's sort of the cues that I take from the Silmarillion as a published text um, about the nature of the wizards and what they're doing. Then we learn stuff later on um, uh, in Unfinished Tales. I, I say later on because it's published after the Silmarillion. Um, and the a, a bunch of the stuff about the Astari, and it was written after that stuff in the Silmarillion. But let's, uh, as I say, let's hold off on, on, on the details of those things. Um, okay, let's talk about... The closing bits. Let's talk about the the uh, the fate of the rings and the Lord of the Rings stuff. Um, let me just refresh our memory in case it isn't fresh in your memory. Um, the uh, the excellent synopses of the of the Lord of the Rings here. Um, let's see. Okay, here's our synopsis of the Lord of the Rings. We're on page three hundred three here. 
But those who saw the things that were done in that time, deeds of valor and wonder, have elsewhere told the tale of the War of the Ring, and how it ended both in victory unlooked for and in sorrow long foreseen. Here let it be said that in those days the heir of Isildur arose in the north, and he took the shards of the sword of Elendil, and in Imladris they were reforged, and he went then to war, a great captain of men. He was Aragorn, son of Arathorn, the nine-and-thirtieth heir in the right line from Isildur, and yet more like to Elendil than any before him. Battle there was in Rohan, and Curanir the traitor was thrown down, and Isengard broken, and before the city of Gondor a great field was fought, and the lord of Morgul, captain of Sauron, there passed into darkness, and the heir of Isildur led the host of the west to the black gates of Mordor. Okay, let's just pause there for a second. In that first paragraph, what things do you notice? What things strike you about this uh, about this synopsis, Dave? The uh, the reference to others recording this uh, in other places is that a is that a reference to Bilbo? Yeah. and the Hobbits. Absolutely. And are we to interpret that to mean like is this is this part being actively written in could this, could this chapter very well actually have been written by Bilbo and not by the elves themselves or the elves used Bilbo's writings as the source material for this chapter? Right, because if the Silmarillion is theoretically Bilbo's translations from the Elvish, which Bilbo which Frodo brings back with him to the Shire, then either this would be Bilbo adding a bit at the end about what he and Frodo wrote. Or, even more interestingly, Bilbo translating the elves referring to his and Frodo's work, either of which are fun <laughs> to think about. Yeah. Well, one thing, one thing I wonder is, are these stories, the stories of the Third Age, and specifically some of the, the maybe the things that Bilbo wrote, did these make their way across the sea to, to the Blessed Realm? That's an excellent question. There's really no way of knowing. No, there's certainly no there's way no of knowing. Yeah. I, you know, I get, I get, you know what this kind of, this gives me a, um, reading that and thinking about it gives me the same, um, the same weird, eerie feeling that I get when I read the story about, um, uh, the, the story of Aragorn and Arwen or the story of Gimli going across the sea with, with Legolas and you're like, who the heck, when is this being written and who the heck wrote it? Right, right, right. Yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, it's, it's af I mean, I mean, obviously it's after the fact, but how long after the fact? Um, you know, Chris was asking if it could have been added by a Gondorian historian. Yeah, there are a couple options, right? Um, I mean, we know that the stories of those times, that is to say, the stories of the time of the, of the War of the Ring, um, are being kept in a couple places, right? You've got the Shire, of course, with in particular the Red Book and the Red Book tradition, um, preserving the story of what happened in the War of the Ring. Um, and then you've got Gondor, of course, and the historical records of Gondor, which also include a copy of the Red Book. And we have also Elrond um, maintaining the center of lore, of Elvish lore, in Rivendell, and um, Celeborn kind of taking it over when uh, when Elrond crosses the sea. Um, where does this come from? So just to sort of to simplify it that far, what do you think? What's your reading of this paragraph? Does this sound like a Hobbit paragraph? Even a sort of a, a translated or doubly translated Hobbit paragraph? Does this sound like a Gondor paragraph? Or does this sound like a Rivendell paragraph? What do you guys think? Nick, what do you think? 
Well, I'll say right off the bat that it doesn't to me sound like from Gondor, mm -hmm. because why don't they mention Boromir or Aragorn? They mentioned Frodo and his servant. So, I mean, if it's written by someone from Gondo, wouldn't they throw that in? Right. Well, we do get we do get Aragorn and his line. Um, so, it's possible that that I mean, for that reason, that it that it that it could be Gondor. But I agree, it doesn't. Boromir certainly prompts us to imagine that the histories of Gondor um, are very gondor centric um but again boromir's contributions in the council of elrond uh clearly have you know they it uh reminds me of that old new yorker cartoon you know the view of the world from new york city um uh, i i i sort of the view of the view of middle earth from gondor um is very seems to be very skewed um with Gon with gondor looming large at the center of the world again this is what this is what i think we can hear in boromir's talk um so nick in that way um the the sort of the the description here doesn't seem quite gondor centric enough um uh so it doesn't yeah so i'm, I'm i i don't necessarily so so i, I I would agree. I don't think it sounds especially Gondorian. Um, Chris, what do you think? I think I'm still going to vote for the elves. And the, the one line that makes me really think that is the, the reference to uh, Aragorn being more like to Elendil than any before him. Who but at the elves would really be able to make a statement like that? <laughs> That's an excellent point. That's an excellent point. I was thinking the same thing. On the one hand, that passage about him being... I mean, cause you could say it's like, oh, you know, he, he, he returned as the king like a Lendl of old. Yeah, but they would only speak mythically. You're right. The particular emphasis, it does almost sound like, and you know, he really reminded me of a Lendl. I got to tell you, you know, and yeah, you're right. That sounds like a first person account. <laughs> exactly. You know, yeah. I remember old, good old Lendl. Exactly. Right. Yeah. 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 Bilbo, Bilbo's repeating what he overheard, um, uh, uh, in Rivendell. Yeah. Of course, that's possible. It's possible. But no, I think, and again, remember the, the, the whole framework of this story has been that it's an elvish story. Um, and, you know, that, that, that these are, these are, now, that these records have always been from the initial concept way back in the Book of Lost Tales. The idea was always that these are elvish stories, um, that, uh, that, have been passed down to have have come into the hands of humans afterwards if not we wouldn't have them now would we um so you know th there's always eventually their transmission through humans um but you know as they're as they get translated by bilbo here um but yeah i think that we can see and chris i think that's a really excellent observation this does strike me as more of the elvish point of view as well. Again, it's less interested in Gondor than 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 Gondor than the Gondorians would be, I would have to think. Um and it uh I can't imagine that it um that 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 Bilbo would have written for Frodo the Halfling, though I didn't get to that line. Um for as many songs have since sung, it was the Perianath, the little people, dwellers in hillsides and meadows, that brought them deliverance. For Frodo the halfling, it is said, at the bidding of Mithrandir, took on himself the burden, and alone with his servant, he passed through peril and darkness, and came at last in Sauron's despite, even to Mount Doom. And there, into the fire where it was wrought, he cast the great ring of power, and so at last it was unmade and its evil consumed. Um... It's really hard to imagine 
Bilbo writing that passage. Um, that passage, it is possible to imagine a Gondorian scribe writing, I would say. Um, but, uh, um, but again, it, it does sound more like, more like the Elvish point of view. I really like, for as many songs have since sung, it was the Perianoth, the little people. Um, and then you'll notice, um, uh, let's see. Yes. So just before where I started reading, um, for Sauron was too strong, yet in that hour was put to the proof that which Mithrandir had spoken, and help came from the hands of the weak when the wise faltered. Um, again, that kind of, that kind of, that kind of big picture. Um, what I would want to emphasize, um, as we work towards, uh, as we work towards closing, because, though needless to say, since this is the Silmarillion Seminar, we've had people clamoring for one more week before we even started. Uh, however, um, all things uh, in Middle-earth must come to an end. Um, the ending and the failing are the central theme, remember. Anyway, uh, um, as we work towards the end, I would just want to think about the way that this encourages us to look at um, The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit 2. Um, the way in which this passage totally recontextualizes our relationship with that story. Um, you know, there's a kind of, there's a kind of immediacy. When you read a book, um, you know, when, when you're reading a novel, there's, there, there's a kind of immediacy that it, that it has very often, most of the times, um, with modern novels. There isn't really any clear gesture at, uh, the sort of the, the narrative frame of the story that is, you're just reading this and we don't know who exactly recorded these events and how it is that we are able to have this record of these things that happened. And, um, you know, if you're reading an omniscient narrator or a partially omniscient narrator, you know, how exactly do you know what's going on in the thoughts of the protagonist and all of that stuff? Um, uh, you know, the, 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 those are questions which very many modern books don't really encourage us to ask. Um, again, it's just part of an immediate experience. We are, you know, part of the, the sort of the unspoken contract between author and reader is that, you know, we're just being given access to this stuff in the same way that we're being given access to the inside of somebody's palatial uh, Manhattan apartment uh, in, a, in a TV sitcom, and we're not supposed to ask questions about that. Um, the Lord of the Rings, at times, not all of the time, but for much of the time, can be read that way. We can just kind of lose ourselves in the story. Um, there are many places in The Lord of the Rings where we're not permitted to do that, where we are pushed out of that framework, and we are where we're reminded that we are reading a record of things that happened long ago, um, and that we are reading legends that have been passed down to us. I'm thinking of, for instance moments in the Battle of Pelennor Field. Um, the fact that the, the, you know, one of the, 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 the most moving, most dramatic, uh, passages of Tolkien's prose, you know, his description of the charge of Theoden onto the Battle of Pelennor Field, that he interrupts this to quote us the epitaph on the horse's grave. Remember this? 
when he tells us what's on Snowmane's tombstone. Um, you know, it's like, I, I now interrupt this battle to tell you what happened after the battle, how they cleared everything up, and they end up having to burn the body of the fell beast, but they buried Snowmane, and they put up a tombstone for him that had this carved on it. And it's like, uh, can we get back to that? I mean, can you, like, imagine a movie that did that, right? Let's pause to a flash forward of digging the grave of Snowmane and erecting his tombstone. Now back to the battle, right? I, I moments like that where we're not permitted to stay within that kind of immediate frame of the story um, where we're not, we're not allowed to forget that we are reading something which is being told by someone who is situated historically well after these events, who is, you know, our narrator is himself looking back on these things. Um, another really prominent moment is when Theoden sets out from Dunharrow, so he's just called the muster um, at Meduseld, and he leaves Dunharrow, and he goes and he rides uh, to the to the to the muster of Rohan. Um, nothing's happened yet, right? He hasn't done anything. Theoden hasn't accomplished. Anything. He hasn't even set out with his army yet. Theoden has just gone out to to meet his army. And you remember what we get? We get a song uh, at the end of that chapter. We get this long song about. Um, uh, uh, you know, um, from Dunharrow in the dim morning with the Thane and Captain came Thangle's son. To Edoras he came, the ancient halls. And it's like, why are we, why are we getting a heroic verse about him going from one place to another place? I mean, it's not, nothing obviously momentous has happened. We wouldn't have known necessarily that it was momentous, but our narrator, who was looking back on this and knows that in leaving Dunharrow and going to, to the muster at Edoras, Theoden has taken the first steps on the journey that's going to lead to his heroic charge and death on the Pelennor fields. And our narrator cannot help himself but to stop and to mark the significance of this moment, here is the moment when Theoden sets out. And we don't even know why it's important yet, right? Again, if we're just in the moment, we have the faintest idea why this is so important. But our narrator um, goes off and, uh, and, and, and tells us about, and again, and, and if you read the, um, if you read, you know, carefully the poem itself, it's not even that the poem is particularly, you know, action packed. Uh, it just talks about him leaving. And, and again, it's only in retrospect that that poem has any significance. Um, you know, that that event has any real meaning. So again, these are ways that within the Lord of the Rings itself, within the framework of the Lord of the Rings itself, we're reminded that we are the recipients. We are the, we are the, uh, the, the sort of the later, um, uh, the later receivers of this ancient legend. In the Silmarillion, that sense is absolutely inescapable, right? Whereas the sort of immediate narrative drive of the story, um, our, you know, sort of intimate presence, um, you know, right there with the characters and, and even sometimes listening to what they're thinking and stuff. That's the, that's sort of, the, uh, you know, the A mode of our, of our, uh, uh, of our interaction. The B mode, you know, is the sort of occasional reminders that, that come through. In the Silmarillion, we're in the B mode the whole time, right? Um, there isn't, I think there are very, very few points in the Silmarillion where we actually lose track of the fact that we are, um, that we're actually hearing 
are a heroic legend, you know, that we are, we are receiving that. Um, so it's interesting, therefore, to come to these paragraphs and to see the Lord of the Rings receive the same treatment that the rest of the um, Silmarillion has received. And Laura, you made a really interesting observation two years ago in our notes here. Um, uh, Laura asked, how many things are, how many other things are summarized in the Silmarillion that could be thousand page epic tales if they were fleshed out? Uh, Laura, I, I think that the, I think the answer is lots, quite, quite a few. Um, you know, some of course are fleshed out quite significantly. Um, you know, you think of, of course, the, the release of the children of Huron as a freestanding novel. And that was clearly, I, I, I think clearly, um, that was a direction that Tolkien seemed to be taking at least one impulse that Tolkien had with this material later on in his career. Um, again, I'm, I'm sort of, have my mind on, on, on Tuor and Gondolin since I've been thinking about this in preparation for Unfinished Tales. Um, but that fragment of the Tuor story that we get in chapter one of Unfinished Tales, how long would that sucker have been if he finished it? I mean, that, uh, that would have been a novel length treatment, at least a pretty weighty novella version. Um, of the fall of Gondolin, had he carried on and gone all the way through at least the retreat to the Isle of Balar, if not, um, my guess, by the way, as to where that story would have ended had Tolkien completed it, um, talk about your wild speculations, my guess would be, um, that, uh, it would be at, to, when, when Tuor and Idril set sail and are never seen again, um, you know, when they finally go out to sea, it would have taken him a heck of a long time to get there, I think. Um, so, uh, so again, we see that impulse, I think, of him, of, of his, of Tolkien's, to expand these things and actually, you know, sort of give us the full version of them. Um, so that, uh, uh, so that we can really see these stories. But yeah, I think there are, there are a lot of stories which would be very significant in that way. Um, well, before we lose Mike, I do want to end with, uh, with style time. Mike, I want to, I want to, I want to, I want to do some style time, um, on your, uh, your, your observations about the ending of the, of the, of the book here. Um, Laura, is that what you wanted to draw my attention to? Yes, absolutely, yep. because it is not Silmarillion Seminar without style time. That's true. And, and Mike's point is brilliant, as usual. Yeah. Mike, what, can you walk us through that there? Uh, sure. I mean, I was just reading the last sentence of the book, and the, you know, the hair on the back of my neck sort of stood up a little bit. And I think what I got was two things. One was the images of autumn, twilight, and the seashore, which are central images of all of Tolkien's work. And then I also think that that last sentence is in somewhat of a, a metrical style. Like there's some, there's some poetic meter going on there. I, I sense a rhythm. It's not perfect, but those two things combined together, I think, uh, recapitulate a lot of what I find so powerful poetry, song, and the imagery of, uh, the autumn, the twilight, uh, the ocean. Yeah. 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 Here, let's read that last sentence there. In the twilight of autumn it sailed out of Mithlund, until the seas of the bent world fell away beneath it, and the winds of the round sky troubled it no more, and borne upon the high airs above the mists of the world it passed into the ancient west, and an end was come for the Eldar of story and of song. Um, you're right, Mike, that it does have a, 
uh, it, Mike was sort of dividing it into lines. Um, and you can probably hear, I, I tried to reflect those breaks a little bit uh, in the reading that I just did of it. Because uh, he's right, it does break into phrases which do sound almost like um, they work uh, as poetic lines. In the twilight of autumn, it sailed out of Mythland till the seas of the bent world fell away beneath it, and the winds of the round sky troubled it no more. And borne upon the high airs, above the mists of the world, it passed to the ancient west, and an end was come for the Eldar in stor of story and of song. Um, yes. Uh, here's, my, um, here's my stab at that, Mike. What I would guess here, and I think one of the things that... I mean, there... There are a couple of ways to explain it. One of the simplest, I think, is merely that Tolkien was particularly alert to the kind of incantatory nature of uh, of, of of prose. You know that he um, he modulates into this. You'll notice, thinking of the um, some of the syntactic discussions we were having in the Return of the King class, the, the Mythgard Academy Return of the King class recently, um, on paratactic uh, versus hypotactic style um, that uh, that Tolkien uses. We get very paratactic, and born upon the high airs above the mists of the world, and an end was come, um, you know, and the winds of the round sky. Um, we, we get this long sentence with a bunch of things strung together with ands. But again, it's not one of the effects of that is exactly the one, Mike, that you point to, the introduction of these kinds of, uh, of these regular periods to use that word in the old sense, the way they would have used it in the 18th century. Um, you know, little syntactic groups there um, uh, coming together. And even if it's not, ex as you said, Mike, it doesn't exactly work as poetry, right? I mean, it's the, 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 the rhythm isn't perfect. Um, it neither rhymes nor alliterates, though at times there are hints of both. Um, but again, it's it's not it doesn't actually settle into something you would call real poetry, but it has some of the 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 sort of the rhythmic power of poetry as you read it. Mike, go ahead. Yeah, what struck me was there's a there's a similar concluding sentence in Lord of the Rings where Sam returns and there's a, a long sentence with a lot of ands strung between each clause. Yes. And Rosie was there and he put the children off his lap and he, the fire was lit. But then you get that final sentence where Sam says, "Well, I'm back," and it sort of it sort of tempers the sort of shimmering poetic nature of everything that came before it. Uh -huh. But in this case, there's nothing like that. You're left with that lyrical. Uh, incantatory uh, spell and nothing disrupts it. Right, right, right. Yeah, I agree. Because that that's that's the mode, you know, the Lord of the Rings does modulate up into that on several occasions. The Silmarillion kind of lives there. Um, not always uh, way up at this level, but but um, uh, but but much closer to it. The other thing that I would say, you know, the the other effect that I think, you know, and and this might be going one step too far, but it's still fun to think about, and that is to remember that again, the fictional frame of this thing that we're reading is that it's not only a translation from the Elvish, but that this the story the the stories that are being told are in fact songs. Think back to the number of times in the Silmarillion where we are referred to the full poetic version of the story that's being so crudely summarized in prose uh, here that we're reading, right? Um, you know, uh, you know, but the full tale is told in the song that was sung by, you know, in or, uh, 
it'll even give the title of the poem um, that, uh, um, you know, a, as it does for the Lay of Lathian, for instance, the release from bondage. And what we're going to get, um, you know, we're not going to get the Lay of Lathian because we're not going to get, we're not going to get verse. It even says, um, if I'm remembering, uh, if I'm remembering that passage uh, correctly, let me not just try to remember, but actually look it up because it's easy to find. Beginning of chapter 19. Of their lives was made the Lay of Lathian, released from bondage, which is the longest save one of the songs concerning the world of old. But here the tale is told in fewer words and without song. Um, right. With fewer words and without song. This is a, this is a, a, a a short synopsis prose translation uh of the you know prose adaptation of this of this song mike the point i'm eventually winding back towards making here is that those that last sentence has the air of a translation of a poem which is trying to capture something of the poetry but it can't do it because it's a translation so it can't really render um what the elvish poem was doing but it's trying to capture something of the spirit and even something of the feel of that poem. And so we get this very poetic prose, but it's still prose because it's, in, and it's not trying to squeeze it into English verse forms, right? It's not trying to squeeze it into rhyme or into alliteration. Um, and so it, it, it's going to give it to us just, it's, it's just prose, but, but again, it, it, it sounds very much like a poem that it might possibly be translating. And I think that that kind of effect, um, whether deliberately or accidentally, Tolkien achieves uh, on, on, on many occasions in the Silmarillion, Mike, as you have pointed to very often. Hey, Corey, do you approve or disapprove of Martin Shaw's reading of, uh, of uh, this? You know, I, in some ways... Well, I mean, Martin Shaw's no Rob Inglis, you know. I mean, I love Rob Inglis's Hobbit and uh, and Lord of the Rings. Um, I like Martin Shaw's reading. I don't love it. Um, I often, th you know, my initial response to Martin Shaw when I first listened to it was that I thought he was way over the top. Um, and, of course, he mispronounces things. Um, not everything, but some things. Um, but, but, I mean, I can't cast stones. I mispronounce stuff, too. Um, however, I was just listening to, I have this really old, like mid 1980s recording of a British guy reading unfinished tales. Um, and whoa, yeah. How the heck did you find that? The internet can be an awesome place sometimes that, that was, that was, that was like a day I won the internet. Uh, <laughs> but because I mean, it's long since out of print. Um, and it, the the recording is so old that it gives you instructions for like when to reverse the tape and stuff. But anyway, um, I yeah, it's it's totally hardcore. Um, but the the reading is by a very dry British guy, and listening to him read these, you know, some of the various some of the same stories, listening to him read Tour and, you know, the 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 Narni Hin Hurin, um without any of the, you know, forcefulness that Martin Shaw gives gives to the story, feel felt really flat. It actually really made me miss Martin Shaw, actually. Um uh in the last two days, you know, I was rereading this 
last section of the Silmarillion in preparation for tonight. And I've been reading the Tuor chapter in preparation for tomorrow night. Um, and so, so I've been listening to the two of them back to back. I was actually, Dave, just thinking earlier today, you know, actually I kind of appreciate Martin Shaw more than I did before. Well, you know, for, for, yes, he mispronounces a lot of things. But for these sort of poetic, um, uh, kind of like dramatic end end bits, like at the you know the end of the Quintus Silmarillion, the end of the Akalabeth, the end of this chapter, where, where Tolkien sort of wraps things up, um, I, I appreciate his his reading uh, for those parts. Yeah. Maybe less so the uh, the weird music and like the crackling noise <laughs> that they play. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've 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 come to. Uh... I've come to feel a deep affection for the dramatic music that comes in that sort of creeps in uh at the end. Yeah, that's true. I admit it. I also I also yeah. have a weird affection. Yeah. Exactly. I always find myself singing along when we get to the when we get to the to to the dramatic. We're going to find that music and we're going to put it at the end of this show. Yes. yes. Can we please? Yes. Yes. That would Absolutely. It's so good. Okay, it's it's really cheesy, but I but again, I I feel very great affection for it. Um, but uh, but yeah, no, it, it's it is a little it it it's over the top, but it's grown on me. And you know, in a sense, I think the choice to do it over the top is a highly defensible choice. Um, and 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 again, as as this old recording has reminded me, the opposite doesn't work well at all. Um, you know, when you try to make it sort of dry and pedestrian. It really doesn't work. Um, that's one of the things, um, that word dry is a word I've heard used of the Silmarillion many times, um, by people who didn't make it through of Beleriand and, it, and its realms. Um, and I could see what they mean on the one hand, but on the other hand, I've always felt that, um, it was never, it's never really a very accurate description. Um, because the Silmarillion, it, you could call it, uh, confusing. You can even at times perhaps call it tedious, but it's rarely dry because of its style. Um, its style is not dry. It can be inaccessible perhaps to some, but not exactly dry. Um, you know, I always feel like when people call Chaucer boring, um, Chaucer is never boring. Um, if they're bored when reading Chaucer, it's because they're not understanding, which is fine. That's, that often happens with Chaucer. Chaucer's hard um, to get into his language, just as the Silmarillion is hard to get into its language. Um, but yeah, so uh, um, so reading it like it's an encyclopedia versus reading it uh, Martin Shaw's way, in the end, yeah, strongly prefer Martin Shaw's way. <laughs> Mike, do you have any any final thoughts about the about the last uh, the, those last lines? I, I agree with you. I don't think he went too far in, in saying that it's uh, you know sort of evoking a song. I I almost imagined a final line of the Elvish equivalent of Hallelujah. Right, <laughs> right, right. Yes, exactly. Um, yeah, I love um, I love the finality of this. You know, and it's fascinating even thinking about. Um, what we were emphasizing before, you know, what I was emphasizing and what you guys were, were also, um, talking about as well, the emphasis of the story on fading, um, and decline. That is 
certainly one of the central themes and one of the primary ideas of this story. But notice that's not where it ends. Um, although we do get the passing of the elves and the and the coming of the dominion of men, the final image that we're given is not fading, um, is not even sorrow in that way. But that departure, we leave, and this is again perhaps another elvish point of view thing, we leave with the ship at the end. Um, here we get almost like an alternate version of the end of the Lord of the Rings, right? Where instead of being left standing with Sam on the on the quay watching the ship take off in the distance, and the the Lord of the Rings gives us Frodo's perspective for a paragraph, right, with the whole uh, far green country under a swift sunrise. Uh, but then we're back to Sam watching the ship fade away in the distance and then turning around for home. Here, um, uh, and of course it's the same ship, right? It's the same scene that we got there at the end of the Lord of the Rings. We get it again, but now we follow it. And we don't just follow it from Frodo's point of view with him not even really fully understanding what he's seeing. Um, here we follow it uh, from outside with full knowledge of what's going on. In the twilight of autumn, it sailed out of Mithlund until the seas of the bent world fell away beneath it, and the winds of the round sky troubled it no more. I love the combination of the bent world and the round sky. Um, the, the, the way in which the, you know, the sky, the heavens up above the earth, is made to seem like such a small local neighborhood by that one phrase, the round sky. The winds of the round sky troubled it no more, and borne upon the high airs above the mists of the world, it passed into the ancient west, and an end was come for the Eldar of story and of song. The finality of that line, an end was come for the Eldar of story and of song. It points to their fading, right? The songs for the Eldar are done. Um, but, um, you know, and our story is going on, but again, we're not, we don't get Sam. You know, the final note of the Silmarillion is not, emphatically not, well, I'm back. It is an end is come uh, in story and uh, in, of, of story and of song. Um, and Mike, I think it's 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 why I think uh, it's it's so wonderful to think about those last couple lines as poetry and song. To think about this is the end of the final song of the Eldar, um, the last song of the elves that we are still hearing. And we're still getting, you know, because we're still here in the bent world. We're still underneath the round sky. Um, and autumn has passed to winter and back to spring again for us in the little cycle that we're still caught in here in the, in, in the world. But, um, you know, we're getting an echo. We're sitting here reading a, a translation, a prose translation in fewer words and without song. Um, but even knowing that th these things are has this power, and even though we know that they're gone, that they are done, that an end has come of story and of song, it's not ended for us, because we still have, we are still telling their story. We are, you know, we're not only making our own stories, um, we're still telling their stories, and that their stories can touch ours in the same way that they did with the hobbits, the, you know, the way that we get, um, you know, that the, the the knowledge of the of the elder days being kept alive by Sam and the way in which the hobbits return from their journeys larger and uh you know in Mary Pippin's case physically larger um uh but you know grown up and changed you know we too as our worlds come into contact with these stories um you know the stories and the songs don't die because we come into contact with them so um so we too have reached 
there is, and so an end has come to the Silmarillion seminar of story and of song, to which Jordan adds next week. <laughs> maybe, maybe. Um, anyway, thanks everybody. Uh, it, this is, it has been a lot of fun to, uh, you know, wonderful memories to come together for a, a final Silmarillion seminar episode. Um, uh, you know, we'll have to have another reunion tour again some other time. Uh, thanks for joining me for this final episode. Thanks to everybody who's been listening and who has been, who has gone on this journey with us in various times and various places. Um, so see, you guys can think just as the story of the elder days don't really end as long as they're still remembered and, and, and told in translation among us. So too, the Silmarillion seminar will, there will always be one more week as long as there are still people out there listening to them. <laughs> so there you go. There you go. Well, that's it for this episode. And now an end has come to the Silmarillion seminar of story and of song. On behalf of the token professor, Corey Olson, the Silmarillionaires, Dave Kale, Chris Stevens, Matt Shaw, Jordan Hattery, Mike Thurway, Jason Jewell, Nick Brisbane, Elizabeth Woodard, Brandon Young, John Evans, Mario Gage, Joe Stoll, Laura Suku, and myself, Laura Burkholz. I wish you Godspeed, and thanks for listening. <laughs>